燃え上がれガンダム愛が愛は重すぎるって理解を拒み憎しみに変わってく前に何もかもそうなの罰の悪い地上にはいつも蓋して壊せ物も,もリアル歪んだ地面は最大Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wacky and wild world of Gundam with the second season of Mobile Suit Gundam Double O, or as we all love and know it by Double O Gundam. Double O Gundam, indeed. Sean, I love this show to fucking death. It is fantastic, Jonathan. Yes. So, season two. So, so if you have not heard our previous episode, we talked about the first 25 episodes of this series, which is season one. Uh, season two, we jump ahead four years in time, and、uh, we have a, a season that honestly feels almost less like a second season than just a straight up sequel TV series, you know?、Mm-hmm. Um, but put together, I will say,、uh, one, season two did not disappoint whatsoever. I have heard rumblings from people online who don't like season two as much. That's dumb. Season two is great.、Uh, and put together, I think Gundam 00. Is one of the very best shows we've watched for this project. It is phenomenal. It is easily the best alternate universe Gundam, if you consider Turn A is like really in the Tominoverse.、Um, and it's just one of the best ones. And, and I'll wait until seeing the movie for like my final, final determination. And obviously, we will rank all of this in our second year anniversary show this summer. But、uh, good God, this show slaps. Very hard, Sean. Yeah, no, I was very happy、uh, watching the second season again because, yeah, because, you know, I mean, at this point, like, Weekly Suit Gundam has been going on long enough that it's like the amount of time it's been since I originally watched these shows has, like, meaningfully increased so that, like, in my memory, some of it has gotten, like, foggier. And so there's a lot of stuff about season two I didn't quite remember. And especially because, yes, there is, I think, Um, like a certain opinion online. And I think it's not like a consensus. I think the opinion on season two is like somewhat divided that there are people who really, really like it. And there's some people who don't like it as much.、Um, and so, yeah, I think some of that, like hearing that and like knowing that that opinion was around, I like, I, I couldn't tell like what was my feelings on season two. Like I knew I really liked it, but I was like, is it as good? Is it worse than season one? Um, and re watching it, one, I think I know why some people don't like season two as much because it is very different in some ways. Like they've changed it,、um, especially if you really like the first core of season one, those first 12 to 13 episodes, which I still think is probably like the best concentration of Double O. Like at this point, it's, it's moved somewhat far away from that and turned into a relatively more traditional Gundam show. So I can kind of see where some people would be disappointed by that and、um, that it gets a little bit over the top. 
um, in a way that I love, but it definitely is like, it feels less sort of grounded in like super serious hardcore, the way that that first section of Double O like very much is um, this very grounded uh, speculative fiction type story. But I think like when you look at the sweep of the show as a whole and see how that transition happens and where it's moving into more traditional Gundam structures, what it is saying about Gundam, um, and what it's saying about its like general themes by using those structures, I think is fascinating. And like overall, I think season two is just as good as season one. Um, I think there's some stuff like particularly the second half of season two, I think is like some of the best stuff in any Gundam show. Um, and yes, I would agree that this is um, the best AU Gundam that we have watched. It might just be, I mean, we're getting pretty close to the end. And like, I would probably say, you know, I'll have to rewatch Iron Blooded Orphans, which would be its main competition. Um, but I, my instinct is to say that this is the best AU Gundam that has been made so far. It's it's so good, and it feels so fresh. Even when, like, Season 2 does move into more traditional Gundam territory, the way it does it is still so in its own voice, and, like, so in its own moment. Like, we talked about a lot with Season 1. This show is of the moment it is made. This is a Gundam that has updated its geopolitics to be about the 2000s. And if anything, I think season two goes harder on that than season one did. Like season two takes a lot of what is subtext with Saji and Luis and makes it the full central, like front of mind text of season two. Um, and it is just so tied into its moment. And it's a moment that for you and I, Sean, I think is very formative because we grew up in the mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, it's it's a very meaningful show in that way too where that level of engagement and that way it feels like Gundam has evolved from the the Tomino World War II paradigm that it had been in for most of its life and then um, really moving into something new and also just the aesthetics of it. If anything, season two is even better animated than season one. There are some episodes in here that I look at and I can't understand how they did it on a TV budget like any TV budget or time, there's just ones that it's just, I, it looks, it just looks like a movie or a really good OVA or something. It's, it's wild. This is, this and Turn A Gundam are easily the two best produced Gundam weekly TV series. Um, it's, it's a, it's a magnificent show and it is a special show. And yeah, I am so excited to talk about season two because it's the same length as season one. And it's got most of the same characters, and we talked about a lot of that already, and yet I feel like this conversation is going to be just as long, if not longer, because there's a lot that happens. <laughs> yes. But but this is like feels a little bit weird, because this is the first episode in a very long time, Jonathan, where there's really no need for me to go into the history of the show, because the history of season two of Double Gundam was they wanted to make a 50-episode show, they were smart and said, let's not do that all <laughs> in one year, let's split it the fuck up. Um, and so that's what they did. And yeah, but otherwise it's the same people making it. Obviously, it's the same director, the same writers, um, all that is like the same crew. They just um, were much sort of more smart about how they structured the production of the show um, so that they didn't murder every single person working on it to get it all out in one year. So they didn't have to do a recap episode two episodes before the end? Exactly. Yes, it avoids the seed destiny problem of the seed and seed destiny problem of the like slowly accelerating rate of recap episodes until you're yes, you're like right at the end. And it's like, how do you even manage to fit a recap episode in here? That doesn't seem possible. I mean, here's something that's amazing, Sean. Double O has no recap episodes whatsoever in season two. And in season one, it has one act of one episode does some recap stuff. And that's it. 
in these 50 episodes, like, and I think this is easily, easily one of the best paced Gundam shows. Like, mm-hmm. every, there is no wasted episode. There is no episode I point to in these 50 and go, that's the bad one, or that's the one where they're killing for time, or that one didn't quite work. Every one of them has a purpose. If anything, I think down the home stretch, I was like, this idea, like in this act of this episode, maybe could have been its own episode if they had 30 instead of 25. But like that is so different from even Gundam shows we think are high, high tier, wonderful, like Zeta and and some of those like have their off episodes mm-hmm. or their ones where like this is a little bit of a plot cul-de-sac. Um, none of that. Gundam Double O, like the se- like the season structure is such a massive breath of fresh air, and I assume that's true for the entire anime industry. But good God, it helps Gundam. A lot, especially after seeing Seed and Seed Destiny both, I think, suffer from having to stick with that 50-episode thing. Yeah, I think Seed and Seed Destiny are the two shows that struggle with that the most by far. But yeah, but even, like, otherwise, like, great shows like Zeta Gundam. Zeta still has its, like, weird Rosamia bottom shit, that arc at the end that gets cut out of the movie, right? That's, like, there entirely to keep Camille occupied while you do other stuff with other characters that, like, would not be necessary if you broke up the structure like this. And yeah, like really with Double O Gundam, um, I think you identified it, Jonathan, of that it really kind of feels like what they managed to do is kind of condense a Gundam and its own sequel into one show effectively by splitting into seasons. And so you get this really kind of focused um, version of those stories because season two does like very kind of consciously model itself off of some stuff from like Zeta, where you have the A-Laws are clear, like parallel to the Titans and stuff like that. Um, that it is, and, and like, I mean, just the time jump in and of itself has, like, it gives it a sequel feel where all the characters are grown up and they're kind of dealing with the consequences of the first season. Um, and so, yeah, so it's kind of managing to take, I think, some of the best parts of Gundams and their sequel shows from history and kind of putting it all together into one full story, making both sides a bit tighter in the process. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, so should we should we start by just talking about the the time jump and the characters and the state of the world as we we come into this? Yeah, so so it's set four years after season one, um, and it, and it sort of expands on the thing you see at the very end of season one that we kind of hit on but didn't talk about in depth, which is at the end of season one you see the Earth Federation government become established, right? Which is like the very clear indication if you are a Gundam fan that okay we are now moving into Gundam type territory right that that this whole series is in many ways kind of like a prequel to Gundam in some ways of not like in a like literal continuity but in the sense of it is about what happens when mankind is beginning to take those first steps into space um right like colonies are being developed space colonies are being developed but none of them are really established yet um and you don't have this unified earth government And that's kind of one of the tricks of season one is you kind of come to understand that, oh, the part of the point of season one is to establish a Gundam style status quo that then our main characters must deal with after the time jump. And so that after the time jump, you have the Earth Federation government. And then within the Earth Federation government, you have the A-Laws, which are your fascistic um, autonomous peacekeeping force. Um, that is basically your like super space cops that are able to go kind of act with impunity um, and are, you know, they are kind of our main foes as this arm of the Earth Federation that truly has this, you know, that that very fascist 
we go where we want, we do what we want, we kill who we want in order to maintain control over the Earth sphere. Yes, and I think that is a really compelling choice because it allows this you know, the season split and all that history you have with season one allows you to come into season two and they've set up something that is much more self-consciously Gundam-esque, like Tomino Gundam setup. And yet, because you have all that history from season one and saw how it was all made, there's an added sort of richness to navigating that. And then it is all tweaked and reconfigured and rethought in a way that still fits this mid-2000s geopolitics, you know? Um, and so, like, what the A-laws are and what they're doing, it's, it's, it's obviously a reference to and, like, inspired by the Titans from Zeta Gundam, but it is also much more for a world where, like, the Iraq War has happened, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and the Middle East becomes a literal play field for weapons and, and, and competing geopowers. And, yeah, that, that happened. This still happens. Um, you know, and so all of that side of it is just so compelling. And then I think where you get to see all these characters have to, like, figure out how to fit within this structure, it is... One of, I think, the most exciting uses of um, sort of the Gundam structure, because every AU Gundam other than Mobile Fighter G Gundam, which is proudly its own original thing, and mm -hmm. I love it so much, but all of the other ones really are trying to, like, do something with, like, what, like, Tomino left in, in all of his Gundam stuff and, like, see how we can reconfigure and play with it. And, like, the most explicit of those is After War Gundam X. Um, you know, Seed is... is it goes in quite a few different directions with it um, from being kind of like almost a straight remake and then going in a different direction and then see Destiny doesn't know what the fuck it's doing. Mm -hmm. But like this show has such a like creative use of that where it is because we don't come into that structure until halfway through, um, it is such a thoughtful and engaged critical like lens on this world and these tropes and what it does with all of those by the end. And like, you know, just, I mean... All on its own, you can just look at, again, Saji and Luis as kind of like our center point of this entire series, and that Luis becomes basically the four Murasame or something like that of this series, the like tortured, um, you know, super soldier girl. And yeah, and but in this case, it's not someone we've never seen before who's mysterious, it's this girl whose history we know very intimately, and that makes it even more painful. And there's just it, season two is full of turns like that that are so interesting to me. Yeah, and I think part of what it is with season two, and again, I think this is something that turns some people off from the season, but I think it's like a very needed and necessary evolution, is that it takes like the elements from the original show and makes them more exaggerated. And that's kind of what the Earth Federation yes. government feels like, is it's this exaggerated version of what geopolitics is, where... It is like the super UN or super NATO, right? I mean, like literally within the show, like the kernel of what the Earth Federation is comes from the United Nations, right? That's part of what uh, Alejandro Cross, the guy who's like Ribbons' patsy who dies at the end of season one, he was like a major representative of the UN. And so its vision of kind of how this comes about is born through currently existing like international treaties and organizations that then come together and evolve into this kind of world power, but not everybody's included in what counts as the world power. But that can, but again, that's like an exaggerated version of what already happens in modern geopolitics, right? We already have our alliances. We already have like Japan 
which is not like particularly involved directly in wars in the Middle East, not particularly, um, but is through its alliance with NATO and with the United States is involved and is complicit, right? You, you are in the same way that Saji is, right? That your hands are not like clean because you are part of a large international organization that is creating this political instability in different countries in the world for your own benefit. And you see benefit through that, through the treaty. And so that's kind of what it does, I think, in most spaces in season two, is it looks for those elements and kind of exaggerates them and makes them more monstrous, right? It takes like drone strikes and turns them into these autonomous killing machines and space lasers and just like blows the proportions out more. Um, and I think it's a very satisfying direction to take the show is to start with what is, you know, still sci-fi. It's still mechs and stuff. But as we talked about season one, it feels very grounded, even within Gundam. That is for Mecha, relatively a grounded series. Um, it is like very familiar what it's dealing with. And here, as it pushes more into that exaggerated space that you expect with Gundam, it is recontextualized with all that knowledge, you know, from that grounding to like really kind of more richly color or tint how you're understanding what the earth federation is what like their actions represent and what the characters are dealing with yeah absolutely um of course we also uh and it also it makes the the opening act of this season this season is like just hits the ground running there's no like slowdown anywhere in these 25 episodes because you have to start by like creating a new status quo uh, and like getting the band back together basically is the opening act of this season. And then there's just, there's no like, there's there's big stuff that happens in this season that would otherwise be the climax of a of a series, you know? Like the mm -hmm. first assault on the Memento Mori is the halfway point of this season. And, you know, a big fight with the space laser. That's like how most Gundam shows end, uh, you know? And, and so that's our halfway point. And then we have to do, we basically do the equivalent of a colony drop. And then we have the big battle at the end there's just there's so many events but i really do like the the i remember just sitting down to watch let's talk about the premiere mm -hmm. of this season the angel's second advent which is the episode title in the history of gundam that sounds the most like an episode of neon genesis evangelion um and and you start with uh just seeing some of like the recapitulated status quo but mostly everything is kind of blown up from where we were last season and then Setsuna comes in to to save the day at this this one colony and and rescue Saji specifically um, in the most badass mobile suit of all time? Question mark. Yes. So yeah, the reveal um, that Setsuna has been fighting alone right since the end of the first season, where the Exia is like partially destroyed and he is sort of just like catapulted out into space. Um, he has been fighting. And he has, it's, he's, has his, like, these, like, very, like, rough gorilla repairs to this super fucked up Exia that has, like, a big, like, cloth cape on it that's covering up one of its really fucked up arms. Part of its face is destroyed, and it's got this whole, like, what if somehow, like, a Gundam could also be a Terminator look with, like, the red eye? Yes. Um, it is, yes, it is a very, very awesome looking fucking Gundam. I just that whole premiere is fantastic and it, it introduces the A laws and the, the, the little drones that shoot people up and it's very violent and it is a very disturbing episode at places. But the Setsuna coming in with that mobile suit and it's it's that thing is on screen for maybe five minutes and it is one of my favorite mobile suits of all time. Just the fucked up Exia is one of the coolest things. And I just that feeling of like cause I had a little bit of that trepidation you described, Sean, of like 
I hadn't seen season two, but I had heard some of the mixed reactions. So I'm like, I loved season one so much. I just hope this is good. And then I see that premiere and I'm like, yeah, we're in good hands. Because the rest of this could be shit and I still might like season two just for that episode and just for the fucked up Exia uh, is, is maybe enough for me. And that's just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. But it's a great start. And I think also as like a statement of intent and like the confidence, and this is something that is there for me with Gundam 00 that, that maybe elevates it from a lot of other, not just Gundam, but just TV storytelling in general, is just the sheer confidence it has at every inch uh, of its being, of like, it knows where it's going and it's never meandering or feeling like it is trying to suss out a direction. Uh, and I think that's there in season one very much too. But season two opening with introducing the A-Laws, very violent confrontation at this colony. Saji is there. Saji almost gets killed. He meets with Setsuna. He has this confrontation of recognizing, learning Setsuna is in celestial being. And then they go off and are like rescued by the remnants of the Ptolemaeus. All in that one episode is like, okay, they know what they are fucking doing. And this is a statement of intent. And I, I loved that. And, and just getting Saji like in the crew right away and that kind of thing is just the kind of stuff where it's like, they, they, they're not dicking around here. They know what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that um, I, because I couldn't remember at what point Saji joins with the Ptolemaeus and Celestial Being, because I remember this like that's a, you know, a part of what season two is, but I had a hard time remembering when it happens because you figure it's going to happen deeper into the season than than the first episode. But I think it's so smart for them to one, most of episode one is framed from Saji's perspective, so you're really kind of with him um, in kind of reasserting part of the dynamic of the show which is that Saji is your grounded relatable audience insert type character he is your like teenage Japanese boy right who is like witnessing these events that in any other Gundam show he would be your Amuro or your Camille or whoever who ends up in the Gundam um but here he's he's a passive observer who is just getting fucked around by the A-laws because he happens to be working with um another person it is one thing that was weird is, I don't know if you remember the beginning of uh, Jedi Fallen Order, Jonathan, but it is the exact same thing. Like, it is the exact same opening. It's you are working with this other dude, and it turns out that the other dude is, like, part of, like, this faction, rebel faction or whatever, and then the fascists show up and kill him, and you get thrown into the conflict. Is the same fucking opening, and is fucking weird. Um, but I, it was like, I just did not remember that when I played that game. I have no idea if that was conscious or not, but it's weirdly similar. Um, but yeah, but then he gets thrown into this work camp, reunites with Setsuna, realizes that Setsuna is part of Celestial Being, and then, like, just to survive, ends up coming back with Setsuna to Ptolemaeus. That all happens in the first episode. And so within the first episode, they take your audience insert character who had like limited contact with our actual Gundam boy Setsuna and now they've put them back together in the ship over the course of the premiere and that to me is like a real statement of intent of what they're trying to do with um particularly like the Setsuna side of the show by by reuniting these two kind of what feels like you come to realize over the course of the season are two fractured halves of one whole Gundam protagonist right you have the traumatized um, child soldier in Setsna, and you have the audience insert like every man character in Saji and they were separated for most of season one and you're kind of seeing them deal with these different parts of their lives and then now in season two they come together and that frames so much of both sides of that story of what Saji's journey is and kind of having to become more like Setsna and Setsna's journey and having to become more like Saji in the way that he has to become more of like a whole person and less of a weapon.
And, and, you know, I said earlier that season two takes the subtext that was there with Saji and Luis and makes it text. And it's very literal. It's like Saji mm-hmm. is plucked out of the subtext, out of like this corner of the show and put in the Gundam and put in the Ptolemaeus. And now he's there. And now that is text. Like, because season two is really about that question of, and I think the central theme of season two is, are you, like, what do you fight for? Like, what is your awareness of the world? And with that awareness, what choices do you make? And it is most literalized through Saji, because he is someone who comes to understand his own privilege from where he was, and that he lived a life where the fighting was separate from him, and that now that it is immediate to him, and there are several points where they make it, I mean, it's immediate the whole time, but they make it, you know, really visceral, like when all of the Cateron soldiers die because he was an idiot. Um he has to confront the idea that it's immediate to me now and it never wasn't. It always mm-hmm. was there and I was ignorant to it. And and now that I my eyes are open, I, and there's a great moment, it's like the exact halfway point of the season where he almost flies away with the Exia's, um, not the Exia, the, uh, the, the, the double O-Riser. O-Riser. Yeah. And, and it would have been a very traditional Gundam Boy moment, right? Every Gundam Boy takes the thing and flies away. And he realizes... If I, like, this is the old me. This is the me who thought, I am not part of this. I can't be part of this. This is other people's fight. Fuck this. I'm leaving. And he says, no, no, I'm here. Like, I I don't know what to do with this quite yet, but I know I can't just leave. And that's, everybody is dealing with that in this season of Gundam 00. And it is something that everybody on Earth, like, should be thinking about if you live in, like, a, you know, first world society with, with privilege is... You know, what are you, with the awareness you have, one, are you going to become aware of the world around you? And that is the process of season one is that, is becoming aware. And then if you are aware, what do you do with it? And it's not just that this show is engaged and it's in the politics of the day. I think this show is like pretty subtly like subtweeting other Gundam shows, like Mm -hmm. Gundam Wing and Seed and Seed Destiny to a certain degree of like, the plot mechanic of the person who just chooses to be totally on the sidelines and violence is wrong 100% of the time and fighting is wrong and all this stuff, like, no, actually, um, there is a lot, uh, like, there's a lot of gray area here, there's a lot of nuance, but it is important to pick a side and fight for that. It is really fucking important, and that is what this season is about, and it does that really beautifully through the entire tapestry of characters. Because we could go through, I feel like, every level of this. And that choice is, is put to everybody this season. And it's it's where they live or die. It's where they rise to or fall um, is on that choice. Yeah, absolutely. It is about, like, what do you fight for? Um, and then it's also about, like how do you create something new, right? How do you like yeah. move, which is a very Gundam theme, right? It's very new type-ish. And this is where you get, um, I think it's like by far Double O Gundam has the most successful new type stuff. Maybe since the original Mobile Suit Gundam, like I've always like been kind of back and forth on how much I like the way that post Mobile Suit Gundam deals with new type stuff. And we've talked about this on this podcast when we've done those episodes that sometimes I like it. Sometimes I think it's a little bit too magic, um, and here, um, they kind of go back a little bit to, I think, some of the sensibility the original Mobile Suit Gundam had in the ability for Setsuna to connect people together and, like, what the consequences of that are in trying to build something new. But one thing I like about that is that the show, like you're saying, like, in terms of subtweeting other Gundam shows, 
the show feels like it is like very consciously trying to make this statement of we of like we need to change in the sense of like Gundam needs to change. That Gundam needs to move beyond the things that it has been stuck in forever because the world has changed. Um, and I think that's like you get a lot of that very literally in the show, symbolically represented in um, like ribbons. Who plays Ribbons, the mobile suit that Ribbons is in at the end, which is resembles directly the original Mobile Suit Gundam, right? But it is this like urging of saying we need to move past what that understanding of war was that was so informed by World War II, where Japan was directly involved, and the people who made it were like either lived during or grew up immediately after uh, like Japan's involvement in World War II and what happened to their country. Uh, but now it's like, that's not what the Japanese position in the world is anymore. Like the Japanese position is Saji's, right? And I think it's so powerful having that like assertion of saying, we can't have Japanese Gundam boys because Japanese people are not the people who are suffering from war anymore. It is someone like Setsuna living in the Middle East. And, and so much of Saji's journey over the course of this season in particular is having his face fucking shoved into the dirt to say like, look, this is what is happening. This is what has always been happening. And you have been like conveniently ignorant of it. Um, and I think that like really harsh push to say like, we can't have that perspective anymore. We can't have the, the Gundam boy be Japanese anymore or like vaguely Japanese because it's not representative of what war is in the 21st century. Um, and I think that that's like, you have to have that understanding in order to build that something new. You have to realize that it's like, it's not our place. It's Setsuna's place and the other characters to have that conversation and, and, and to push that forward. Yeah. And 13 years on, which is how long it's been since this season aired, it's as, it's as relevant as ever. It's wholly prescient to like the world as it has continued to be, um, it is, it is, it is, it really feels like a Gundam for the moment um, in a way that is, is beautiful. And I agree with a lot of what you were saying about the innovator stuff. And, um, and, and I also, there's a conversation to be had that I will get to when we get to like the end of the show that it, it does the new type stuff. I think I agree, like on par or better than a lot of like post original Gundam, but it also does that by just going back to a lot of those ideas that especially like. I, I will make the argument, this is another Gundam that is heavily influenced by Tomino's novelization of the original Gundam. It is, like, heavily influenced by, and I will talk about that later. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a hell of a thing. So should we do kind of what we did last time and break down some characters and catch up on where they are? Yeah, sure. So where do you, where do you want to start? Well, let's start with Setsuna, because that's where we started last time, and, and we had him here, and I... I really liked Setsuna in season one. I love Miyano's performance. I love the character design. I love the idea of the, of the character. I love the the move to make him someone from the Middle East, an Arabic character who who has like ethnicity in his body. It is not like a subtle thing that is part of who he is. Um, and I love him as a pilot, all of that. And I was still surprised at how much I came to love him more in season two. He has one of just the, the like clearest arcs and journeys of any Gundam protagonist and and going from the beginning of season one where he is I, I guess timid is the wrong word but he is very quiet he follows his orders he does his thing he views himself as a human weapon and that's it to being a really dynamic individual who is not just that but is a born leader and by the end of this season he is the leader of celestial being like like sumeragi is the captain of the ship the patalameos 
But, like, the final minutes of the show make it abundantly clear, if it wasn't already, like, he's the guy standing on the bridge giving the orders. He is the leader of Celestial Being, and he is that because everyone else looks to him as their North Star. And you see that progression every step of the way. And, I mean, man, getting an actor like Mamoru Miyano is like a godsend for that because he is so good at tracing those minute little changes in a character um, I also just love the redesign that they've given him, mm-hmm. the way he he visually grows up. They do this with several characters, but like the other day I was going back to some season one episodes to get some screenshots for something, and I saw like what I now think of as little sets from season one, and it's like, oh my god, he grew up, he was a little boy in this, he, he's an, and he's a man in season two, and he grows up. Um, and then of course he is in just a ludicrously cool Gundam for this show, and becomes a ludicrously good pilot. He's just all around one of the best Gundam boys. Setsuna FCA for the fucking win. That's what the F stands for. Yeah, Setsuna fucking Seye. Um, if he, yeah, it's like that should have been what like in the epilogue like sequence uh, where Daybreak's Bell, Bell is playing at the end of season two. That's what someone should have turned like Lasse should have turned and says. Anyways, Setsuna, what, what does the F stand for? He just looks him in the eye and says, Setsuna fucking Seye. And then they fly off into space. In the what I thought you were going to say is he, he he does that. So Lasse turns and says, what, what, we never learned. What's the F stand for? And then what I imagine is Setsuna puts on like some fucking like Quattro Bagina style <laughs> sunglasses. Says, Setsuna fucking say. And then rips them off and throws them. And the theme from like CSI Miami starts. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. That is that is an even better version of that dumb joke. But yeah, no, Setsunev Seye, he has always been one of my favorite uh, Gundam boys. And and yeah, like when we talked about him in season one, like I was trying to kind of set set us up for this conversation in season two, because this is like, his Setsun is like the thing that to me, like in my memory stands out the most about Double O Gundam is how elegantly crafted the character is. And if there is anything that is like a condemnation of a previous Gundam series, it is the, the whole existence of Cessna FCA as a condemnation of what happened with Hiro Yui in Gundam Wing. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, because it's a, you know, it's a character archetype that's very common in anime, but is not actually that common in Gundam, which is like the cool protagonist, um, by which I mean like he is like both like cool in the way we use that word casually and then also cold, right? Like it's a very stoic kind of character um, that it feels like in some ways kind of unreachable a little bit standoffish, but also just like says and does really cool shit all the time. Um, and that's very much what Hiro Yui is. And Hiro Yui is just a very straight faced version of that character archetype, which ends up being very boring um, because, because they too, they too much believe that he is cool and he's just cool for the whole show. Everyone thinks that he's cool. Um, even when, even when for the plot to happen, he has to do shit. That's very dumb. The show never seems to realize that what he did was dumb. Whereas with Setsuna, it's on the outside, he's like exactly like Hiro Yui, right? He says the same kind of shit. He's got the same kind of tone of voice and the way he carries himself. That He's very stoic. He doesn't say a lot. The things he says oftentimes like feels very cool. And he talks about how he is a Gundam and all this shit. Um, and, and he feels cool. But in season one... He's such a fragile person, right? Like, he is someone whose entire life is motivated by this intense trauma he has from his childhood of being effectively brainwashed and killing his own parents. And and so, on the outside, he projects this emotional coolness, which is what I think he wants people to see him as. Um, but on the inside, he's just a complete fucking mess, and he has no idea what he's doing, um, right? He's, he's just ripped apart inside trying to understand 
who he is, what his place in the world is. Is there a god? What are the Gundams? Like, what should he be fighting for? Is he a weapon? Is he a not a weapon? Is he trying to get revenge for his parents or not? Because getting revenge for his parents means killing himself. Like, all that kind of stuff. Like, he's just so broken up. Um, and you start with season two seeing him already having matured a lot as, like, an extension of what you see from, like, the ending of season one, where you see him kind of building that, like, really kind of human center back up in this, like, more solid foundation. And when he comes back, one, his redesign, he is one of the coolest looking Gundam protagonists, I think. Um, yeah, because that was that kind of culture shock of what he looks like kind of hit me when I watched season one, where in my memory, it's season two Setsuna and going back and being like, oh my God, he's this scrawny little 14 year old kid. Like he looks so young in season one, but especially in contrast to his much more, I think, kind of iconic design in season two, where he seems so like actually put together like actually mature has that like foundation and then over the course of season two you see him building that up right which is him becoming the innovator right him becoming the person who breaks new ground to sort of try to motivate that change and understanding the people around him um and you have that big moment near the mid of the season i think is when it happens where he has that vision um, of lock on Stratus and like he has that vision of him killing his parents and him trying to stop his parents death and he can't and then and then actual like lock on Stratus Neil Delandy shows up um, with the eye patch and everything and says the only way you can change the past is by how you use it to understand your present but the things that happened in the past can never change but you can change you have to change that's not I couldn't do it so you have to and that becomes Setsuna's catchphrase for like the second half of the season he moves on from his whole catchphrase being either I am Gundam or there is no God, which is the two things he says all the time in season one. And in season two, it's about, no, like, there things have to change and I have to become that change. And that's what really, like, motivates his character to become this very wholly put together, solid human being that feels like it's like what Todofuria says about Amaro in that um, TV segment I, I did subtitles for where he's talking about Char's counterattack Amuro of like adult Amuro has that quality of he's put his life together he's figured shit out like he has this solid foundation where, where it feels like he knows who he is and what he needs to try to do and it's such a huge amount of growth from this fragile broken up little kid in season one to this fully confident adult um, by the end of season two. It's just one of the, the most elegantly constructed character arcs because the whole time on the outside, he seems fairly similar. He says similar kinds of things. He's got his cool tone, tone of voice. So it's like the changes are so subtle, but they're so effective in building out that character. Yes, I agree with all of that. And I think it's you know worth thinking about the innovator slash new type shit here because what makes him so unique from every other Gundam boy who deals with new type stuff is that he's actively inviting it. He mm -hmm. is saying, I want to become this. Bring it fucking on, right? Like, he is pushing it forward. Whereas, for most other Gundam characters that deal with new type stuff, it's either they're resisting it, or it's kind of passive. Like, it's something that happens in the back of their mind without them, like, knowing or trying. Like, Amuro 
it's not that Amuro is reluctant and doesn't want it to happen, but it's not something that is like front of mind. There's something going on in me and I need to push it and pull it out of myself. That is not his vision. The closest this is to is like, I think Unicorn Gundam does a little bit of this with its main character and some mm -hmm. of that. And Unicorn is like my other favorite presentation of new type stuff outside of the original Gundam. So I think there's some, some similarity here and, and Unicorn was made after double um, O. So some of that makes sense, but like, yeah, that, that is part of what makes it so dynamic when you, you have this character who's just like vision of how he's going to approach all the, the crazy power shit that we get is just very fundamentally different. Um, and yeah, and again, just you cannot praise the voice actor Miano enough for all of that because as you say, it's these minute little changes he has to trace and that is what he is so uniquely good at doing as a voice actor and I praised him for that in the context of Death Note last time, and I, I think that's still very true. You hear him do that with Light Yagami, and he's extraordinarily good at it, and he pulls off the same kind of trick here with Setsuna, um, maybe with an even greater degree of difficulty, because there is no moment, there's no equivalent to Death Note where like he gets to just go fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't get that. Setsuna doesn't go crazy. Setsuna cries a little bit, but he doesn't go crazy. And so you have to do it all within a certain range, and it is a tremendous vocal performance. He won the voice actor of the year award at the second annual Seiyu awards for this. And what a, what a richly deserved award uh, for that actor. <laughs> yeah. Cause it is just like, it's one of those where the, the performance is just like flabbergasting to me because it's, it's the kind of thing where it's like, I just can't even imagine how you do it. I can't imagine how you stay within the vocal range that sets the FSA is for like 95% of the show and still be able to portray those character differences so well. Um, it's just so what he's asked to do is so subtle and, and yeah, it's, it is incredibly impressive and it ends up with Setsuna like Setsuna has since I've seen double Gundam been absolutely one of my favorite Gundam boys. It has been fun to re-experience that and like remind myself why I liked this character so much on watching it the first time. Cause I think it is, um, it, his character arc is so, so satisfying to experience. It's one of the most satisfying since Amuro's original, Right, like you get, I think a very similar feeling that you got from the end of Mobile Suit Gundam when you see Amro just like trashing enemy mobile suits without even having to think about it, and how much he's grown. Yes. It's the same thing with Setsuna of how much it's like it's not about the Double O Gundam, right? Because the innovators have fucking Veda, and they've got Trans Am, and then fucking Ribbons has his twin drive system. Like they have all the shit that Setsuna has, and they still can't touch him because because he has grown as a person to that extent and that it's one of my favorite things to see in a Gundam show is how well that character's arc is dramatized through the action and they're like represented as their ability as a pilot absolutely uh it's it's I think the one where it's really literalized for me is his big duel with Mr. Bushido Graham Aker mm -hmm. and that you know like part of me in my mind wanted the full episode long epic duel that goes on for 20 minutes and is just the most amazing thing ever and instead, it is mostly contained to the post credit scene of one episode, 21, and then the pre credit scene of episode 22, and it is very fast. And it is a phenomenal mobile suit fight, but it is very in line with Amuro versus Shar at the end of Gundam, or more accurately even, I think, in Shar's counterattack, of just like, Amuro's like, get the fuck out of my way, I have to go stop the big asteroid, fuck you, Shar. And that's what it is, and it's because it's, and that's where you see that growth. Uh, and also contrasted with the other character, in this case, Mr. Bushido, um, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, so good. So good. Yeah. So should we talk about the other members of Celestial Being? 
Yeah, let's because you know I mentioned lock on Stratos and that vision before, um, and so now it's time. This is one I was like very excited to get to because this is a thing that is fun to watch season one, knowing they do this thing that seems it should be fucking impossible. Like it's a yes. it is such a bad idea, and they pull it off so well. Of let's take like what is designed to be the like audience favorite character, lock on Stratos, Neil Delandy. Who's like who is the de facto leader of like the Gundam Meisters in season one? Who dies tragically at the end of season one? It's like let's take that audience favorite character who is so fucking cool, and now let's take his like younger twin brother, um, and Lyle Delandy, who is set up. He is set up in season one. You'll blink and you miss it, but he is there's like two or three brief moments where you get like a indication of him being there, um. And bring him in and have him take over Neil's place as Lyle Delandley, the new lock-on Stratos, played by the same actor, Shinichiro Miki, um, and have him just full-on be a Gundam Meister, and he's a Gundam Meister the whole show. It's not like a, and he's a clone that turns into a villain or something. It's nothing like that. It's just like straight up, that's just what it is. It's the twin brother, looks the same, same voice actor. Um, and you just put him in to a, you know, it's a different Gundam technically, but it's a similar type of Gundam. Um, and you just roll with it. And that feels like something that should just alienate your audience immediately, that like you would never expect your audience to be able to accept a new identical version of that character to overtake the role of the original that everyone loves so much. But it is like one of the best parts of season two. It is a fucking magic trick um, that is down to the like incredible performance by Shinichiro Miki and being able to find the distinction between those two characters within a very similar vocal range. And then also the writing being able to um, create a very different type of character in character arc for Lyle compared to his older brother. It's so good. It is so astonishingly good because it is on paper the worst idea. And like, it's a punchline. Like, um, there's a famous example of this. Um, the the John Woo movie, A Better Tomorrow, which is like one of the most famous Hong Kong action movies. It's like the start of like what we now think of as like the Hong Kong sort of crime soap opera heroic bloodshed movie. And it's where Andy Lau and Xiao Yun Fat got their start. And Xiao Yun Fat in that movie in particular, playing the character Mark, became like the style icon for men in all of Asia for like 10 years. Because he's got the sunglasses and the leather jacket and all this. He's so cool. But Xiao Yun Fat, his character, dies at the end of the first movie because they weren't thinking about sequels and all that stuff. And it's, it's, a, it's a Hong Kong movie. The cool character has to get 100 bullets in him at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then, okay, this movie is one of the biggest hits in the country's history. Now let's do A Better Tomorrow 2. Well, we're not going to do this without Chow Yun-Fat. So what happens is Andy Lau goes to Singapore and finds that Mark had an identical twin brother. And by the end of the movie, he's in the same getup with the sunglasses and everything. And they just replace Mark. That's what I was sort of thinking they were going to be doing here with Lyle. And it's not. And I think it's because the writing makes a really concerted effort to distinguish Lyle. Like... One, he is just, at the beginning, he is not only not the leader of this team, he's not really part of it. He is, he doesn't know these people, he doesn't particularly care about these people, he's a Cateron agent, he does not really have loyalties to Celestial Being, and that alone makes him such a fascinating difference. And then seeing someone having to consciously, like, he's not a bad sniper, but he has to learn to do the lock-on Stratos stuff, and in doing that, he kind of re- realizes that he did care about his brother who at the beginning he doesn't seem that broken up about and he does start to care about this legacy and then slowly he does start to care about these other Gundam Meisters 
and he is part of the team by the end, and he gets the most badass moments of those last two episodes, because mm-hmm. holy shit, he gets some badass moments. And yet by the end, even though he has fully become Lock-On Stratos, he is still very clearly not that Lock-On Stratos. Even though in the end credits, they literally didn't even have to change the credits. It's just the same actor with the same name. Yeah. Like, that's probably the main reason they did it. They didn't have to rewrite the fucking credits. Um, and they pull it off. It is it is stupid how well it works. Yeah, and, and it is that thing where it's very satisfying, you know, his character arc in season two of going from someone who is effectively like the newbie in the group, which just like, there's like just very satisfying dramatic irony to it, right? Of having a character who is the leader, who was the most effective, you know, I mean, this is the dude who has like probably the mic drop moment of season one when he first shoots from the earth into space. um, Like with one of the coolest things any Gundam character has ever done. Um, And the character who's so cool, he ends season one with an eye patch because that's how fucking cool he is. Um, and, And so taking that really cool, mature leader character and then having someone who seems in most ways to be identical, but then having them be the rookie, there's just like a powerful irony to that that I think works for the early episodes really well. Um, But then also having him be someone who doesn't actually like specifically believe in celestial being at the beginning of the season. And then at the end, he is one of the two Gundam Meisters left, right? Because Alelia seems to be on earth and he is with Mary and like doing his own shit. Um, Tyria has become one with Veda and has ascended back into heaven as an angel. Um, which is, you know, we'll talk about like the religious uh, imagery that they, is very heavy with all the innovator stuff here. And, but then it's Setsna who's leading them and Lock on Stratus who's still with them in that last shot at the end with all the crew of the Ptolemaeus. Um, and yeah, that, that arc of having him be like effectively a non-believer in celestial being, someone using them for his own ends to support the like, the like rebel faction that he's actually a part of and then ending with being one of the two remaining Gundamisters that is sticking with Celestial Being's mission after the end of the show. It's great. It's so good. And uh and let's talk can we just talk about his big moments at the end of the season? Because it uh-huh. ties in some other characters. Like so he is the one who gets to kill Aliel Sanchez. And on one hand I do I'm like I'm not a hundred percent sure how I feel about this. So I'm curious to get your thoughts that like I'm not 100% sure how I feel about how Ali Al-Sanchez is, like, used this season. And that he doesn't, like, Setsuna never gets a final moment. I didn't need Setsuna to be the one to kill him. But I just felt like there was maybe a lack of closure there. But also maybe that's intentional because Setsuna has moved on from that. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But um, they do give it to Lyle. And Lyle, the, the animation, the timing, the direction on drop the gun... Ali Al-Sanchez being an evil fuck goes, ha ha, I win, goes to fire, and Lyle just flips in space, grabs the gun, and shoots him straight between the eyes. That is some Clint Eastwood-ass shit, and I love it. Yeah, no, it's it's great. Yeah, like, I I, I like the way that Setsuna just completely moves on from Ali Al-Sanchez. Um, it's, like, it's just like he's dealing with bigger shit. Like, I think there's right. something satisfying about... Um, because I think it's it's that encounter he has with Ali where he gets shot with the like the bullet that has the like red gene particles on it or whatever that like he's dealing with through that like middle section of the show. That's like what motivates his vision he has of Lock on Stratus that gives him the desire to like become change. I feel like that's kind of the moment where it's like Ali Al Sachs is whatever, right? Like it's it's yeah. it I feel like that's when Setsuna kind of puts that behind him and moves on. And, and I think it does give Lyle 
the completion of his arc of like re-embracing his family and the things that he lost um and in his brother and then like and his family from the original terrorist bombing that ali was a part of um and yes it does lead to i think just one of the best because also the fight between them um is when they're in their mobile suits is also one of the fucking best where they're just completely fucking each other up um this is also where uh lock on stratus uh in season two gets one of the best gundams also the gundam uh Kerdim, uh yes. where it has one of my favorite things which are the shield bits which i think are so fucking cool they're so um, cool what a great evolution of the like bit or funnel concept to make them like these big thick plates of metal that are both that both you can use to like ram into things and damage them that way and then also to block shots and he has just some of like the best action sequences or contributes to some of the best action sequences by using the shield bits um that i just think it's one of the coolest parts of the gundam shit in this show because you know mobile the season one had some great mobile suit fights i think season two has just like among the best mobile suit fights pretty consistently in the whole series or in like the whole franchise yes well because it also has some of the best mobile suits in the franchise like that is one of the biggest breaths of fresh air is just like Oh, God, the, the mobile suits. Like, most AU Gundam shows, other than, again, turn A is its own thing, don't have great mobile suits. Like, Gundam Wing does, and, and credit to Gundam Wing. But After War Gundam X is mostly recycled. G Gundam, they're mostly kind of jokes, but they're funny. Um, Gundam Seed, Seed Destiny are mostly recycled again. Uh, and then this is like, this feels like new Gundam mobile suits, and they are, and just all the way throughout, they're just all so good. Yes. And yeah. so then you get great battles out of them, too. Yeah. And then uh, Lock-On also has the moment where he kills uh, Revive Revival in uh, in the finale. And just, like, the move he does in the mobile suit and the animation and all of that. And uh, ugh, there's, there's so much good stuff. Lock-On yeah. Stratos, a badass, whether it is Neil or Lyle. And I do love that one of the main characters of a season two in which we have characters named Ribbons and Revive and, and Mr. Bushido, one of the main characters is just named Lyle. That is a good choice. Yes. Yes, it is. You have consistently ridiculous. I feel the same thing about Billy Katagiri. That's like you have yep. all these really ridiculous <laughs> characters, and over here is Lyle, and over there is Billy. It's so good. Oh man, the you can pretty much trace the quality of a Gundam show by the quality of the silly names, and uh, that's why Gundam Double O is one of the best. Uh, yes. It's got really good silly names, um, including Alleluia Haptism. Yes, in this one, very good segue, Jonathan. Yes, uh, who I do think is the Gundam Meister of the Four who maybe gets left behind the most this season in terms of like how interesting I find him. Not that I cease finding him interesting, he's a great character, but like I feel like the meat of his stuff is more in season one, and, and here it's mostly the stuff with Marie, um, which is very good, but it is r- roughly resolved by the halfway point of this season, and then the last stretch is more about the other Gundam Meisters. Yeah, I think basically what they do is they make season one particularly Alelia uh, heavy and then go very light on Tierdia, and then they flip that in season two and make yeah. Alelia's role is fairly light in season two. Um, like you said, it resolves more or less at that midpoint with Marie um, and him like getting that back. Um, it, but then they spend that time that they would have spent on Alelia on Tierdia instead. Yes. Um, and we'll talk about Thierry in a second, but yeah, I mean, I still like Alleluia. His, uh, his, his, all the new mobile suits are good. His is good. It transforms. It's cool. It's sweet. Um, and the stuff with Hallelujah, I do kind of like that it's like, they don't bring it up again. Like there is the moment where Hallelujah like revives in his mind, but is like basically a benign 
element within him that has been like synthesized and so it, it feels like all that stuff that happened in season one with that is rewarded and not reversed and i'm okay with that <laughs> yeah and and one thing i do like that they do with his arc is in that second half it's it's again it's not sort of focused on very heavily um, but I do like the arc he has of, like, he has this very kind of paternalistic attitude to, towards Marie that, like, I think, at least for me, rubs me the wrong way for that middle part. Yeah. Um, and I, but, but, like, the show incorporates that, right? That, that then I think it's Lock-On tells him, it's like, dude, she's her own person. Like, you, like, I get it. I get, like, your whole thing. But you need to let go and, like, let her slash Soma, like, make their own choices and live their own life. If she wants to fight. She has as much a reason to fight as anybody else. Um, and, and, and Alleluia having to like let go of that very kind of, you know, masculine paternalistic attitude he has towards her to like this need to protect her and instead look at her as more of an equal. Like I like that part quite a bit. And you said earlier that Gundam 00 has some subtext of just like asking Gundam to move on from things. That's mm -hmm. how that feels to me too, because yeah. Marie very much feels like the character type who would fight for a while and then be like protected. I mean... See Destiny just did it with um, a Princess Lady. I forget. I've already forgotten their names, but you know who I'm talking. I don't. About. I don't oh, um, oh fuck! Because I was about to say Locus, and now I can't move on from Locus in my head. It's not yes. Locus. It's the other one. Yes, I know. But, yes. but you know what I mean. They mm -hmm. they do the exact same thing where she just never gets in a mobile suit in season two and is you know forgotten about because they need to protect her, quote unquote. And and in this, it is all like Cogley. Cogley. Yes. There we go. Yes. yes. I knew it would come to me eventually. Sorry. Um, but anyway, like, here, yeah, Alulia gets called on it. And, and they play it straight for a little bit, and then they stop playing it straight, and he has to accept that. And then she's a big part of the finale and everything, too. So, great, great stuff there. Uh, and then, maybe this, like, stealth MVP in all of this is Tieria motherfucking Erde, who definitely made the least impression in Season 1. Not that I didn't like him. Cool character. Holy crap, I love this mm -hmm. guy. And his just general, like, movement from computer boy who trusts completely in Veda to extremely human person who trusts completely in his friends and trusts in them so much that he is willing to give up his human body for that humanity is low-key one of the best arcs in all of Gundam. Tiaria rocks. Yes. It, it was that thing where it's like I found it so hard to try to talk about that character last episode because I'm like... Like, they don't even, you know, they very heavily hint that he is some sort of, like, artificial human connected to Veda. But they never directly state it in Season 1. So I was like, we just have to, let's just, like, rain check this character so we can actually talk about him. <laughs> um, because, yes, his his arc is so satisfying of, I guess this is where we have to, like, you know, like, uh, address the, the, like, Christian mythology stuff that they put in that is in the background in Season 1. But it's, like, much stronger in Season 2 of where... You have these innovators, or as you come to understand, they're actually innovates. They are not supposed, they are supposed <laughs> to induce their catalysts, right? They're supposed to induce yeah. the change in actual humans, not be the change themselves. And they are angels, right? In a Christian sense. So Ribbons and all of his people, like Ribbons is, is Lucifer, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. Um, and Tyria is an angel, or maybe he's kind of also Jesus at the end, which is sort of where they go with this character of him sacrificing his mortal body and dying for everyone's sins so you can become one with the Holy Ghost and protect everybody again. That kind of shit. Um, <laughs> right? But that's like what they're playing with is this idea of Tyria at the beginning is this arrogant figure who believes himself to be all-knowing or like if he himself is not all-knowing, he's got like a direct line to the big guy, right? He, he is the one who's literally connected to Veda. 
um, who is the thing that is constructing the master plan that he's following. And he's like, I'm the one who interprets Veda. I am above you humans. Um, and he's the one who's, he goes around judging people for most of season one, whether or not he and his vision are worthy to be Gundam Meisters or not. And then his relationship with Lock-On over the course of season one plants that seed of humanity in him. And that's one of, like, I think the starkest things you see in the time jump is you come back with Tyria and he is the one Gundam Meister who's still with Ptolemaeus and the rest of the celestial being that is like, goes and picks up Setsuna. And one of his first lines in season two is him like expressing his faith that like, if we go there, Setsuna will be there. Not because he's connected to Veda and Veda's predicted it or whatever, but he just has this faith in the people he fought alongside in season one. And so having him be very humanistic for most of season two. And I love that his arc then is to take that journey of having fallen to earth, become like a human, learned what it is to be human and like, the value there and then to again it's very jesus the to reascend back into quote-unquote heaven with veda and him totally sacrificing his mortal body in that existence to become something to kind of oversee everything again with this newfound wisdom um i find it like to be a very very powerful arc that is a really effective use of i think what are the more compelling aspects of christian mythology to me Oh yeah, it's it's. I like this a lot better than like the stuff in Eva, or yes. that's just like using it for the imagery. Because um, if it's a Jesus allegory, which it obviously is, it's a really interesting one because most Jesus allegories do not play with the idea of Jesus being humbled, and mm-hmm. that's what they're doing here. And like, obviously, that's not that's not like a scriptural thing, but it is the idea of like, well, what if you had a son of God who knew he was a son of God, and instead of going with that purpose of I am going to like help humans i think i'm better than them and then over time i stop thinking that and i grow to love them to the degree where my death for them is out of this like humbled love and trust in them and that's a really interesting version of that story you know and it is a it's an extraordinarily compelling one um very well voiced by uh, your boy. What's his name? Yeah, Hiroshi Kamiya, one of my favorite voice actors. And yeah, you see why much more in season yes. two, right? Of where he's able to convey like the arrogance and the warmth of the character so well. Um, yeah, he, it's a and, great performance. And he also won at the second annual Seiyu Awards for this alongside uh, Miyano. He, he won uh, for supporting actor for this and, and another role he did that year. And um, yeah, obviously good choice. It's a great performance. You could have picked a lot in Gundam 00, but uh, Thierry is just a special character. And and yeah, I it's it's one of the things that makes that ending... Because that, I mean, the last stretch of 00 gets big and it mm-hmm. gets crazy and it gets... I mean, I even had, uh, I did a, t- a tweet about this, like, there are fights in it that just look straight out of Dragon Ball, where the mobile suits are moving fast and doing, like, the energy hits on each other. Um, and I think Tieria, and this maybe sounds weird because we're comparing him to, like, Jesus and all this stuff, he kind of grounds it. He kind of ties, helps tie it all together within the kind of, like, big mythological framework they're working in. Um, and he's, it's just absolutely key because i remember when when double o started i looked at the four gundam meisters and i immediately got a pretty solid read on setsuna and alleluia and lock on and i really liked those characters and then there's this tiaria over here who i wasn't sure about and i was worried is this going to be like the weak link of these four fuck no he's a phenomenal character there is no weak link of the four and he is utterly essential and that is so cool and i love that they kind of like 
set you up that you're they you don't think starting the show that that's where you're going to go with this character and they really take you on a journey and that is so cool and it's so cool that the, the that this show has the room to do that with all the other journeys we're talking about you know yeah and it's part of the the thing you said earlier about the confidence in double o gundam it's like i think the confidence in saying we're going to lightly develop Tyria over the course of season one. Because he does change, right? Like, his relationship yes. with Lock-On in the last, like, five to ten episodes is, like, very meaningful. Um, but other than that, he's so in the background. Saying this, like, let's have the confidence to keep this character in the background. Even though he's it's one of the Gundam Meisters, right? He's in most of the fight scenes, all that kind of stuff. But we're really not going to dig deep into him until season two. And just, like, trust that the character is compelling enough on a surface level and like the what we do with him is good enough to keep audience invested so that way when we really dive into him in season two um people will fully buy in um and yeah it's a great character um that also has uh his season two gundam is one of my favorites the Cerevi gundam because they take the big bulky boy and then they put a giant Gundam head on the back. And I don't know if it's an intentional callback to G Gundam, but it makes me think of the Devil Gundam from G Gundam and all the crazy Gundam heads that it sprouts all over the place and just saying, just have a giant Gundam face on the back of this thing. Yes. Go for and it. then and then when it splits out and there's just a whole other mobile suit in there, but in a very different way than in the the, the one in the first season, it's such a good suit. Yes, yeah, and I do like the trend in Double O Gundam of having little tiny Gundams that come out of your big Gundam because the Cerebi <laughs> yes. Gundam does it, and then Alelia's, um, the uh, Arios, I think it's called, like that one also has the little tiny one that pops out that, that uh, Soma pilots, yeah. and I, I like the little like baby Gundam that comes out, and I think that that's a really good good thing. Russian nesting doll Gundams, we can call yes. them. Let's do, let's do more of that. Let's, uh, I want the one where it's like a full Russian nesting doll, and there's five Gundams, and one of them is very little. Let's yeah, and in case you didn't identify the Christian metaphors, they did also name the little one the Seraphim Gundam, just so to like yeah. make it very clear what we're <laughs> playing with here. All right, so Sean, where do we take this next? We've got our whole celestial being family still to talk about, including Miss Sumeragi Lee Noriega, who I posed this question on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Which achievement is more impressive? Captain Bright Noah, who leads the flagships of multiple wars to victory in like five successive military conflicts. Um, or Sumeragi Lee Noriega basically taking on the entire human race and outsmarting them multiple times. And I think I might lean Sumeragi Lee Noriega. She is a smart, smart cookie. <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, the thing is that, like, Captain Bright is just, he's, like, a military guy, right? Like, and he's very good at his job, um, where he comes to be very good over the course of the first Gundam. But he's, like, a military dude at heart. Sumeragli Lee Noriega is, like, a genius, right? It's a very different character archetype. Yes. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, yes, no, I think she is the most capable captain in the history of the Gundam franchise. Because she is just, she's a super genius, right? Like, she is able to calculate these like tactical forecasts and shit and come up with these battle plans um and yeah and particularly in season two where they where in season one you would have like the periodic oh, oh now celestial being is like backed into a corner and that happens like two or three times over the course of season one that's the entirety of season two they are backed into a corner for the entire show and so you're constantly getting these like hail mary strategies from noriega to like save the day uh, and it is very satisfying 
there's because I loved that aspect of season one, but in season two, like there's so much focus on like battle planning and strategies and tactics, and it is a side of Gundam that uh, I love, but I love that it makes it's made very explicit in Gundam Double O in a way it never is in the other shows. And there's just so many good moments with that. Like, like episode three, I think, is the one where they rescue Alleluia mm-hmm. from the, the prison. And her plan is that they dive underwater and flood the prison, basically. And, and, and like, mess with the beam weapons. And then they've got, like, 30, 300 seconds, five minutes. And so you've got the Gundams, like, like the double O plants itself here at the door. And then, Alle- uh, and then Lock-On is sort of flying around doing sniping. It's... There's so many moments like that that are just so good. And I love, like, they put her into this rivalry with uh, Caddy Mannequin, who is a great name, um, in the middle of the show. And she's the other genius forecaster. And I just, I love the idea that, like, Caddy Mannequin is there, like, seeing, like, there's this enemy that's doing all this stuff. She's like, there's only one person who could make tactical forecasts like that. It must be Kujo, which is Sumeragi's real name. And then Sumeragi's like, there's only one person who could match my tactical brilliance. And it's Mannequin. And there's just something about that that is like so pulpy and, and I love it. And uh, and of course, in there, they're able to be sort of, not friends, but allies in the final fight. Um, God, Sumeragi is a great fucking character. Yeah, I do love that they just have this whole like Holmes Moriarty story that is happening on the side between these two <laughs> yes. captains for that whole middle stretch of the show. And yeah, no, she's an awesome character. I love the scene she's introduced in in season or in episode two uh, for season two, where Setsuna just shows up at Billy Katagiri's house where she's just been shacking up since the end of season one um, because she's also, you know, she's continues to be an alcoholic. Um, and and she's just like, oh, fuck. Um, and Setsuna's whole thing is like, well, now you, you have to make a choice because I have just said that you're a part of Celestial Beings, so you either come with us or you figure something else out. Um, and yeah, and her just getting kind of like shoved back into this, into like this world and her having to kind of deal with becoming that captain again. Um, I think that that's a satisfying arc. And then, yeah, she just comes up with, again, like the action sequences in season two are just unbelievably good. So she's the one who always comes up with these crazy plans. Like, I think my favorite one, what might be one of the best action sequences in any Gundam is the like trench run basically on the first Memento Mori that whole them fucking like booking along the the orbital ring that the memento mori laser is on and her using like every single last trick that they have the shield bits and transam and which gundams use which transam um and the cerevis like giant cannon and all that to de- to eventually deliver this one sniper shot from lock on stratus stratus right into the heart of the laser um it is an incredibly satisfying action sequence that is only possible because they have this character at the heart of it that can motivate these kinds of like very kind of almost ridiculous strategies that because she is who she is you can as a viewer kind of go along with it yes and like and at that point you know we're so deep into the show we know all of those tools in the toolbox and seeing her put all those tools together for this impossible mission they've set themselves and then they pull it off it's so good i also love their um uh, getting off of Earth back into space episode. Mm-hmm. Those are those are always great episodes. And having one where it's Sumeragi Lee Noriega having to figure out the the strategy of the military side of that. It's a, it's a particularly good one here. Um, it's just yeah, she's a great character. Um, and I love that you know she's still on the bridge with everyone at the end there because because that's where she belongs because she's damn good at this. Yeah. Uh, I this was my this I joked about this on Twitter. But if she was in the uh, world of Gundam Double Zeta. 
and teamed up with Haman Karn, Haman would be ruling uh, completely in full power still by the time of Uso Evan in Victory Gundam. It would be very different. Yes, no. Sumeragli Noriega is the kingmaker of Gundam for sure. Like, whoever she sides with is going to be put on that fucking throne. Yes. Oh, man. Such good stuff. Uh, okay, and then, I mean, most of Celestial Being died, but we do have some still left over here, like Felt, and we have Lasse, um, and all of and Ian, and now we meet Ian's family, Linda, and um, what's the little girl's uh, name? Milena. Milena, yes. Which, at first I was like, oh man, he's, he's letting Milena be on the Ptolemaeus, that seems kind of dangerous, and then you see like where Linda's like, I guess there's no safe place for Milena to be, so why not have her use her skills on the Ptolemaeus? Yeah, I would, I would rather have your family be, if you're a part of Celestial Being, be on the ship that the Gundams have to protect no matter what, um, rather yes. than like the like extra ship that is there that where a lot of the other staff are on that gets blown up uh, in like the second to last episode. It's like, I'm gonna, I want to be on the one that the Gundams come home to, please, thank you. Yes. But I really do like the supporting cast, and there's good moments with them here, and and you know, not not as much focus on them maybe as in season one, but it's it's a good crew. Yeah, the one character, and there will be more stuff with her in the movie as well. But like one thing I really like um, with Felt, um, I I just like that character, I like her design a lot, yeah. um, particularly her like redone, her like more adult design, um, and she has this really great moment with Setsuna in the last couple of episodes where she comes out. Um, and gives him a flower uh, and as this like kind of good luck charm um, but also like this like you know with like vague romantic intentions but nothing that's like intense or anything it's the, and, and there's something about that relationship I really like where she says like I hope Marina um, doesn't get jealous or upset that I'm doing this and, and Sessa just says we don't have that kind of relationship and there's something about this very casual kind of like possibility of romance between those two characters that's suggested in the end that to me is a big part of what the show is doing with this idea of building something and creating something new that is unshackled by the past is this very normal like love like not love but just like the, this potential relationship between two characters that isn't saddled with trauma that isn't saddled with like the fate and destiny which you have with like Louise and Saji have this very like star-crossed lovers arc and similar with Anyu and Lock on Stratus and it's just this like hey we're like co-workers we've been on this ship for a long time we haven't like talked that much but you seem cool here's this flower try to not die and then maybe we can hang out when you come back like that's kind of what it is and that flower yeah. is like the thing that sets in a seas floating in his cockpit um, when he um, is almost knocked out by ribbons. And there's just this very, like, casual suggestion of, like, a possible future there um, that I really like that they use that character for. Absolutely. So you just mentioned them. We already talked about Saji, but the Luis side of things. I really had no read after season one on where they were going to go with Luis. I did not predict this. I, I didn't really predict anything. I just had no idea. And when you get that moment in the premiere where someone says like, Hey, warrant officer Halavi," And I was like, it's just a chill one time. I spent like, Oh no. Oh no. Are they doing the thing? And then like, it locks in like what season two is going to look like once you realize that. Um, and it's, it's so well done. There is a moment with Luis in it's episode 21 at the end where she successfully kills Nina Trinity, who killed her family. Um, which, you know, it's, it's a good moment of this because it's, in the world of Gundam, it's a very justified killing. Because, <laughs> like, Nina has never been up to any good, and what Nina did is just, like, so beyond the pale, just 
bitter attack on this family for no reason um, and ruined Louis his whole life. And yet Louis does this and and then she has this break that like almost feels like what happens to Camille, but it's even like harder because she is still consciously herself where she's saying, you know, like, mom, dad, did I do it? Are you proud of me? I And then just breaks down and has nothing. Um, and that to me is like the key moment for that character. But all the stuff between her and Saji, obviously it's, uh, it, and it's one of those where like, like I said, she becomes like the, the four Murasame or something almost. And so I was very worried they were going to kill her at one point. And I, really really did not want that to happen you know there's a lot of mm -hmm. tension in the season of like please don't kill Luis let them let them live and and they do live because Gundam 00 is is smart about what it's about yeah yeah no like Louise, yes as this like she's like one part four in one part Katejina san from Victory Gundam right like because she also yeah, has yeah. this like much more aggressive edge to her um yeah like I, I think the way she's used is so effective um in in constructing like part of i think the show's argument about like the a laws in that side of things is this like it's this group of people that have experienced different kinds of personal traumas or misfortune or whatever it is that have motivated them into this direction of wanting to have this power and they use this like ideological shield as a way to justify their like abuse of power to other people, but none of them really believe it, right? Like you never get a sense that Louise actually believes in what the A-Laws are doing. The same thing with Sergei's son, which is the character she's paired with for most of the show, um, is that they are like both just motivated entirely by personal trauma, but are putting on this like ideological get up of, oh, and if we kill enough people in like an exact order, like we will end war and we'll end all this conflict. And it's like, really, that's not at all what she's fighting for. Um, and I think that that's part of what makes that Nina Trinity moment really effective is that it feels like that's where the character must now fully come face to face with that fact, right? That she has gotten her revenge. She got it brutally, right? She doesn't just kill Nina. She like basically tortures her before she blows up the mobile suit. All the while Nina just like shouting at her like, you fucking idiot. Like you're not the only one who suffered. Like my, I was created as a weapon. My entire family was murdered. Like I have lived as a servant for like, for all of season two. And in the time gap, it's like Nina has had a shit life too. And it's like, it's, you're not the only one who suffered. And then Nina dies and Louise is left with nothing, but must still be an A-Laws member and must still go out and kill and fight. Um, yeah. I think it's a very effective dramatization of the like, mindset of this person who is taking their traumas and using it to wreak havoc on the world all while hiding behind this ideological shield which is basically what fascism is right fascism doesn't really truly have an ideology behind it um it is it is used as a scapegoating so that you can express violence and authority um and control on the world around you um even when it is deeply immoral yeah, fascism is this promise of of power as fulfilling, but when you reach the moment that you wanted the power for, what are you left with? And that's what she's that's what she hits because the Nina moment that's what she wanted the power for, and now she has it, and it's not you know it's torture. Um, but I think you made a really good point there. They do a good job like humanizing the characters on the A laws, not excusing them, but humanizing like Andre and uh, and Luis particularly. And some of the other characters we see are not like like the Titans are pretty just outright evil in Zeta Gundam, you know. Um, and obviously Rekawa, I guess to a certain degree, although Rekawa is more on the side of um, of uh, Shiroko. Uh, yeah, yeah, Shiroko. Um, 
But like, you know, Andre is more fleshed out and sympathetic than Jared Mesa, right? Um, and, and there's just stuff like that where, and that makes, that makes their argument, you know, even more sort of airtight in what they're looking at because you don't, it's not saying there's no logic to where like Luis and Andre are coming from in joining this group. And that's, that's an acknowledgement that is like, as we deal with the rise of fascism around the globe in 2020, this is a good thing to maybe talk about. Yeah. And, and, but like part of it is that, that. It's like it makes the characters to me like more despicable because you can see their humanity, right? Because right. you can see where they're coming from, um, but how just deeply wrong they are and that they're not, you know, like when you say like the Titans in Zeta Gundam just feel evil, like it makes me think of Bascom, right? Like Bascom right. in Zeta Gundam is this like almost like caricature of this like evil fascist dude, um, whereas these are like people, um, but you see how fucked up they are by following this thing and and it's one of the effective structural tricks of double o is you get that both with louise because you see where she came from from not being involved with the military but you also have all the characters that started as um representatives of the individual military factions in season one that are consolidated in the federation right. so that's like sergey and then katie a mannequin and you have them so you know where these people come from and can see how they just get kind of eaten up by this machine because they were part of an organization that they maybe originally believed in but now that the organization has changed they are just thrust along through momentum and it's like part of katie mannequin's whole arc is her having to come to realize that's like you can't just do that you can't just like accept that you can't just become a part of that like a cog in the wheel of that machine when the machine itself has changed. I mean, the machine she was a part of originally was bad, but it has gotten much worse by the time you get to season two. But she's just sort of continued to rise through the ranks because that's the life that she leads. Um, that's like that like quiet complacency by those characters you met in season one um, that they have to come to terms with, um, that they are now like part of something much bigger and much worse in season two. And that's what I mean, you know, when I said earlier that everybody, no matter how big or small a character has to make that choice. Yeah. And I think this is where we need to bring in like the trinity of Sergei, Marie, slash Soma, and Andre, and also Katie Mannequin a little bit, because you mentioned Katie, you know, she is someone who is like starting to realize how bad all this shit is over the course of the season. But when you get to um, what I, I predict we are going to agree is the best episode of Gundam 00 uh, within the Scattering Light, which is season two, episode 17. Mm-hmm. And the A-Laws do something just so utterly beyond the... I mean, they've already done it with the fucking space laser and blowing apart the Middle East. But they do the blowing up all the hostages in the tower. And you have Katie who just pieces out. That's it. Just like, she takes all of her troops and leaves. And we don't see them again until near the end. But but she has like... We learn in the following episode, like, she was just done. And in that same one is where Andre kills his father. Yeah. And so it's a very stark version of this. But um, let's build back up to that. Let's talk about... Let's start with Sergei for a second and and Soma because or it's pretty early in the season you get the episode where Soma leaves and goes back to Celestial Being and says goodbye to Sergei and you even have... That's the first use of our insert song for this season uh, and you do like a big um, flashback and all that stuff and I just... Man alive, Sergei Smirnov is a great character that relationship with Soma is so interesting and well done. And when you get to her saying, I, I would have liked to have been your daughter. And then, but like, but with, you know, this can't work anymore. Uh, fucking hell. 
fucking hell is so good it's so good. yeah yeah especially i love the when you get those characters reintroduced into season two and it's them both in this like wintry cabin like drinking hot chocolate or coffee or whatever um and like talking very cryptically around this like you know what is heavily implied to be this like adoption thing that he wants to do um and then that's when andre shows up with the orders that says soma Pyrrhus is to become a member of the a-laws or whatever um yeah like their relationship which was so compelling in season one um and seeing that jump in that they have lived this life together effectively as father and daughter even if it wasn't technically in the law and then having them be slowly have to kind of be ripped apart over the course of season two until sergey is killed and then that becomes marie slash soma's motivation for the second half um yeah it is definitely like one of like the biggest emotional gut punches and that's what like it's it's one of the things that feels the most Tomino-esque to me in in 00 season two is everything connected to Sergei's death. It is like the specific kind of tragedy and tragic that it plays on that is, um, I think, very familiar if you are a Gundam fan. But it is what I think it's yes. one that we've not seen in a while, a death that feels that brutal because of how well it has been built up, why it's happening, um, and what the emotional connections are coming into to that tragedy and sergey just one uncho ishizuka i just love that finally he's in gundam and it is just beyond the perfect role for him you know like god what a great voice actor and rest in peace ishizuka-san great actor great performance as sergey and sergey is one of the most deeply good people in this world and yet what's complicated about that is that you also see that someone who is deeply good can have been deeply imperfect and made very, very human mistakes. And like in season two, he's never actively committing the atrocities or anything, but he's not sure how to, he's not the guy who leads the coup either. He's not the guy who yeah. like quite knows how to move in this world. Um, although he, you know, he is, he's okay with like letting Marie go to celestial being and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and just a, one of my favorite characters out of this show. Um, and then you get Andre and this side of it though, where, where Andre, there's a reason why Andre isn't in season one. And it's because he has to come in in season two to challenge your conception of Sergei and say, Sergei is a deeply, deeply good person, but Andre hurts is hurt by this man and hates him and it's it's not without reason and the reason is that sergey had to make this impossible fucking choice with with the mother character and then didn't really have the emotional language to figure out how to reconnect with his son and and it is this like thing that is there um that hangs over all of this and it is just one of the most this entire triangle of characters we're talking about and the kind of tragedy you just mentioned sean and and what what makes this feel so Tomino is it's so human in mm -hmm. in like its complexities and messiness, you know. Yeah, and it's it's with Sergey this sense of, you know, I said this last episode that Sergey he's he's effectively the Rambaral character, not in the sense of like the plot is not Rambaral esque. You know, he doesn't challenge Setsuna or any of that shit. He has almost nothing to do with Setsuna at all. Um, but his characterization is Rambaral, right? He's the guy who is the stand-up dude, but he's a part of the enemy faction, but he's the military guy who, like, has this loyalty to the people who serve under him. He has this, like, sort of, like, fortitude, and you can't help but respect him because he has this clear vision of, like, who he is and what he's serving, um, even if what he's serving ultimately is wrong. 
but it's that part of he allows himself very deliberately to be a cog in the military machine, right? Like he almost takes pride in it because that's he is a soldier, like through and through. He takes the orders, he does the orders, um, and he follows through on them. And even if that ends up with the death of his wife, right? Like that's what he had to do as a soldier. Um, and he kind of can't see anything outside of that context, no matter how hard he tries to, right? I think it's one of the reasons why the character almost like has to die in season two is because he is a character who cannot change, right? Like this is a season about having to find a way to make a change, um, hopefully for the better or for the worse, you know, depending on which side you're on. Um, but he is someone who's like, he can't change because he just takes orders. And it's like one of the biggest tragedies in his whole death is that part of it is just this like simple misunderstanding where, I mean, Sergei is sent to that uh, space elevator effectively to die because the higher ups don't really believe in him anymore. And he's this old relic and they can't trust on him to be a member of to like believe in the A-Law side of the Federation. So they send him there effectively to, to get killed because they're going to blow up the whole fucking thing. But he just goes there as a soldier, never to join the coup. He never supports the coup. Um, he doesn't really fight against them either, but he just goes there to give a message. And that's the only reason he's there. But Andre thinks that because Sergei's there, that he's a part of the rebellion. When that is something that on that Sergei never would have done. Like if, if he had lived and you had gone on for a million more episodes of Double Gundam, you could never, I think, convincingly write a story where Sergei Smirnov went against the military. It's just not a part of who he is as a character. And so he has to be killed because he cannot change and move on from the the like thing he understands how to be, which is just being a soldier. And yet within that, his killing is Andre very definitively making a choice for the worse. Yeah. And and becoming the worst version of himself, which is a, a vindictive fascist, you know, who just wields the power for the power's sake almost, you know. He gets nothing out of killing his dad. Nothing yeah. other than this like violent satisfaction. I mean, that's the most clear illustration of what I was saying of that they use ideology as this shield where he doesn't take a single second to try to actually confirm whether or not Sergei is part of the rebellion because that's not why he killed him, right? He killed him because he hates his dad and he has this trauma um, associated with the death of his mother and this feeling of emotional abandonment. It had nothing to do with protecting the world or peace or whatever their like ideological push is. It's entirely about him like wielding power in order to make himself feel in control and that's it. Um, and it's one thing I may be disappointed with in Double Gundam is I really wish that that character was forced to fully come to terms with like I wish that some like he came to know that he killed his father over a misunderstanding because he never does. Yeah. And there's something about that that is like, I think that maybe that's better that the show doesn't because it's like kind of more brutal that way. But I have this like, Sergei, or I'm sorry, Andre to me is like one of the most despicable Gundam characters. That like he is basically like if you took Hathaway from Char's Counterattack and Jared from Zeta Gundam and messed them together into this one fucking man child <laughs> idiot who kills his fucking, like the person he really shouldn't kill. Um, it's like fucking Andre sucks. Um, and he does get some comeuppance, but he doesn't get the like emotional destruction he sh he deserves by coming to understand that he killed his father for no reason. I do think Andre gets maybe a little lost in the shuffle in the closing mm -hmm. episodes, just because like 
I don't know if I what I need it to be, if it's what you're saying or something else, but I feel like there needed to be a sense of closure there. Maybe that's in the movie, I don't know. But like as it is, his sort of last like Marie does get through to him and has this moment where it's like, you didn't consider what he was feeling either. And and he does have this moment during the like flow of understanding that Setsuna like sends out in that penultimate episode of of having this like little moment of realizing why his dad was so closed off. Um but I feel like that moment isn't fully followed through on, you know? Um, and, and it's just one where, yeah, there's a little bit of disappointment there. But it is it is a bold character and episode and all of that. Yeah. 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 It's, it is one of the best story arcs in season two. And yes, I agree that I think that episode within the scattering light um, is the best episode in the season. Like, it's the one that it just kind of feels like a lot like um, the Colony Drop episode in Double Zeta. Just like the... Uh, yeah. Because that's because all that stuff we just talked about mostly just happens at the end of the episode. Most of that episode is them is like all the different factions desperately trying to just destroy the debris from the space elevator from like crushing multiple different highly populated cities in that whole area. Um, yeah, the, like the desperation across that whole episode is so powerful. It's a stunning episode. That's the one that most powerfully to me feels like. How did they animate this? Mm-hmm. This is unbelievable. It would be unbelievable today or in any era. Like how did? And that's the same way I feel about that episode of Double Zeta. You know, um, is like how did they pull this off? Because the visual scale of what they're working with is just so, so immense, and it is great. And it just gets to that that sense of like tragedy and chaos and darkness and. Uh, you know when ribbons pulls the trigger basically and and tells him to do it and and that tower starts coming down and you just see all these like pieces just breaking off of it as it goes down to earth it feels like they chose the design of a space elevator at the beginning of 00 so that they could do that sequence later on because it is so dramatic and powerful and and so many like characters are coming together in that moment and so many things are bouncing off one another that is an episode where like i had i watched that and the one before it in one sitting and i had been planning to watch more and i had to just like go take a walk mm-hmm. like it was just like that episode was too much to keep watching after that point uh, and they do another little time jump in even like that episode is so powerful that we pick up four months later um but good God, it is, yeah, it is one of the all-time masterpiece Gundam episodes. Yeah, that episode has one of my favorite shots um, in any Gundam thing where it, like, zooms out to the whole planet and you get the context for, like, the scale of what's happened where you see the amount of, like, smoke that's generated from from the destruction of the space elevator and then blowing up all the bits and pieces as it's following and it's, like, covering half a continent. Um, and it's, like, really breathtaking where it puts into perspective the scale with of destruction you're dealing with that i think it's like the first time it's made me feel that way since a victory gundam where victory gundam also does a good job of like making you really think about okay like once like military technology and in the human population in like space and all that shit once you get to that point like you can start seeing destruction on this scale that is effectively unimaginable um and that's i think they just do a really good job of that in that episode I also think that episode and and the one before it, dealing with the whole coup, thematically also brings home so much of what the series is about, where the main goal of that coup d'etat that they do is to make people aware. It is not that they think they're going to solve it themselves, and like pretty clearly, like Sergei's friend doesn't expect to survive this, 
And what it is, is we need to rub this in the face of the public that this is what their government is doing. This is what they're doing in the Middle East. This is what they're doing around the world. These are the kind of atrocities they have committed. They need to know this and they are responsible. And there is like, there's dialogue that character has that is just so pointed and like reads to me as such a pointed critique of like the Iraq war and I think complicity around the world and, and uh, you know, in America, obviously, but in other parts of the world too, for what has been going on. Um, and it is just incredibly powerful to see something like that sharp to the point of feeling like borderline radical in terms of the politics of it for the time. Um, you know, here I have some of the quotes here where uh, Sergei asks him, why have you taken innocent civilians hostage? And he says, I, they're not innocent. They're not innocent at all. Content with their wealth. They accept the assembly's policies without question. This led to the government's corruption. It's the folly of these citizens that allowed the rise of an organization like the A-Laws. We must open their eyes and show them the truth, even if the lesson is accompanied by pain. The government and the military must have responsible citizens in order to function properly. If this is what it takes to open their eyes, I will happily sacrifice myself. I can't believe that's in a mainstream mm -hmm. work of fiction. Japan, uh, America, anywhere. That is a fairly radical political message for your big mechs fighting show. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it, I think it connects to, I think, one of like uh, the kind of critiques or arguments at the heart of the show i think that is partially like self-critical of past gundams and part of this thing of like the show's saying like we need to move past that understanding because it's not true or it's not reflective of the world anymore is like part of the way it's like recontextualizing some of the new type ish stuff of transcending consciousness and us understanding each other on this deeper level it's like part of that very specifically is saying that means that people who have lived in privilege must be made to suffer the way that the people that have suffered from their privilege have suffered, right? Like you cannot be Sanji um, and live this life ignorant of war and all these things that you are like quietly growing fat off of um, and then like have Setsuna come down from on high and connect everybody's consciousness together. And it's just like, oh, we just figured each other out. It's like, no, Sanji has to suffer. He needs his face shoved into the dirt. He has to come to understand that his actions have had consequences and people have died because of him. Blood is on his hands. The same it is on my hands and your hands, Jonathan. We pay American taxes. Our fucking money has killed people around the world. Like, you can't live in ignorance of that fact that you live in that system. Um, and it's like... If you sit abstract from that and don't have that understanding of suffering that someone like the Gundam Meisters do who have been deeply affected by war on a personal level, you will never get the kind of understanding you need to achieve the new type like Utopia or whatever that, that Gundam like yearns for. Um, and that's part of what that general is saying with the coup. It's like these people are not innocent. They have grown fat on the back of war and the suffering of people that they don't know about um, on the other side of the world that they conveniently ignore. It's like, but they are still culpable in that. And they must, like he's saying, it's like, even if it means that they must feel pain because they have to suffer in that way or they will never be able to come to that understanding. I feel like this is one of the ways this show is just so prescient is this is something that I feel like America is grappling with right now mm -hmm. after the year we just had in 2020 where... I, I think, and we'll see, you know, the full political fallout of this um, and where it winds up going. It could be good, it could be bad. But America pretty well got its face rubbed in our own sins in the last year. In that, um, okay, we got angry and elected this idiot 
piece of shit president, uh, and he killed 500,000 Americans. And, and we all had to stay inside for a year uh, and suffer because uh, of the absolute breaking of our government. And there's that top level of Trump being the most incompetent person possible and letting all these people die without a care in the fucking world. But then there are all the systems layered on top mm-hmm. that we have built that we are ignorant of, of our healthcare systems and uh, our, our welfare systems that we had to be fucking rebuilding on the fly over the last year when we had 15% unemployment because of the coronavirus. And and all of our like federalist sort of like state run systems that all break down when you don't have a strong central government and all the ways we don't take care of each other that we needed to do and we we had to get our fucking faces rubbed in that the last year and again you know not all people suffering equally very obviously um but you know seeing like uh, or or like just a couple weeks ago in texas where you know there's a hurricane and texas is out without water or power for days and weeks on end and people are freezing to death in their homes uh in a state that is you know one of the richest in the in the world and should be able to provide for its citizens but doesn't and it's like there's something about that like there's been i think a feeling for so many people this last year of even if you you know thought you were like woke and got it of like seeing the like truth laid bare um is such a a, such a present concern and it's something Gundam 00 is so invested in talking about is that idea of the truth laid bare and then what do you do with it um it's a moment for choosing you might say Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no i completely agree yeah it is it is a show that feels it is like continues to be extremely relevant partially because i think we are still in the midst of the same political moment that the show itself was was made in yeah that it is and it especially like i i think like a lot of because i know this is true of you jonathan it is true of me i think it's true of a lot of people our age is i think we're like at this point where we're like thinking back on a lot of stuff from the bush era specifically um and like the iraq war in that because it's now been like it's been a long time right um, in the September this year, 9-11 will have happened 20 years ago. Um, so, like, it's this time of where, you know, if, if the, like, nostalgia thing, the, like, you know, the thing is like, oh, it's every 20 years is when, like, that the nostalgia thing comes in as, like, Greece for the 1970s, looking back on the 50s, like, that shit. If that's accurate, that means that in this September, 9-11 will be part of our nostalgic lens, right? It'll be part of, this like, the year of nostalgia. I don't know if that will be actually accurate because I think the way the nostalgia works has like changed a lot in the modern era era media. But like, I think it's caused a lot of us to look back on that period right now. And I think double O Gundam has been like a very rich show to be watching while I've been kind of reflective of that stuff for these exact reasons of like really making, I think this very hard lined argument about like everybody's complicitness in what happened at least that like everybody that lived in like this sphere in japan in america again like nato states and places like that um yeah it's a it's a really remarkable yeah. show and then of course you know that gives way to all the stuff about media manipulation that we get mm-hmm. and uh, you know pinning things on terrorists and terrorism that aren't actually issues of that and you know it's uh this this show has what it has in its sights it is not subtle or it's not playing games with what it's talking about. It's very direct about it. Yeah, like there's in that section, because around that section is where the memento mori is being used and it's destroying different Middle Eastern nations. And there's like a line that a character has that is basically just feels like they're reading out of like a like, 
you know, like political science, like breakdown of American foreign policy from this period. Like there's just like multiple lines that characters have of talking about the way that the Middle East is being destabilized by foreign powers for their own benefit. Um, in the way that like Azadistan, right, is destroyed by Ali Al-Sachez early in season two. And you hear like characters talking about like puppet governments being installed by the Federation and, and all that shit is like, which is what we fucking did in the Middle East. Like not even just in the Iraq war, before the Iraq war, during the Cold War. Like we've done that in multiple uh, states around the whole nation states around the whole world. And it's like there is a very clear directness um, to a lot of that stuff around that era, like section of the show where they're talking about what the Memento Mori's effect is and how people are using it um, to destabilize the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, we've gone almost two hours into season two, and we went a full two hours in season one without talking about Ribbon's Allmark. So, yeah, right, you so maybe it is. Maybe it's time. I think it's just time. There's other characters. We'll get to all our other favorites. We haven't talked about Mr. Bushido yet. We'll get there. Sean, mm-hmm. the other night, yeah. the other night, I'm watching. I'm watching Gundam Double O. And there's a there's a character in the middle of this season who's paired up with Katie Mannequin, who's like, and he's one of the like generals or something, and he's voiced by Kazuki Yao, and Kazuki Yao uh, in Gundam was Judo Ashta, um, and of course he's in everything now. He's a very famous voice actor. You might know him as Frankie in One Piece. He's in lots of different things. Um, there's actually several characters in One Piece because they just every time they had a weirdo in One Piece, they would cast Kazuki Yao, and then he played the ultimate weirdo, which is Frankie, um, and and. I noticed it's Kazuki Yao, and I was like, I was intrigued by this, and I'm like, oh, have there been other Gundam boys who have come back and played other characters? And I, and immediately I thought, well, okay, there was Tomokazu Seki who did, um, he's the main character in G Gundam, and then he is also in uh, Seed. So there's that. But I made that tweet, and then you went, Jonathan, we're going to talk about this. And then a bunch of other people went, is he joking? What is he talking about? And I'm like, What's going on? What what joke am I not in on? And then I start looking it up, and the first thing I Google is Toru Furia Gundam, because I'm like, are they saying some other Gundam boy is in this? And I see the words, Toru Furia, Ribbon's Allmark, uh-huh. and the phone drops from my hand in slow motion as my mouth moves agape, and you can just see like my brain flashing through 30 you know episodes of Gundam 00 at this point, going, oh my god, that's Toru Furia, what?! Holy cow! Sean, this mm-hmm. is the biggest mindfuck in the history of Gundam. How did they pull this off? It is amazing. It is amazing. I don't even... I think about it. I, I've finished the show. I think I've digested this, but now I start talking about it again. And it's just like, I can't. My brain can't process what they did here. It's so cool. Yeah, because... So, so yes. Yeah, so, what I think the thing is funny about it is I had, like... A relatively similar experience, just like not on Twitter with that, um, with Ribbons, where for most of Double O Gundam, like I would hear his voice and there'd be something about it that I'm like, there's something here. There's something weird. But like in a way of like, I recognize this voice. But when you've watched like a billion fucking anime shows like I have, you recognize a voice in everything, right? Particularly if it's from this period from like the mid 2000s to now. It's like, well, every fucking actor has been in a million shows that I've watched and whatever. So it's like, I'm sure it's something. And then and then the closer it gets to the ending, the more it's like, no, there's something very specific about this show or about this character, this voice, that's like, it's really bugging me. And I think it was like four or five episodes from the ending, I looked up the actor and then saw it was Tony Fudi. And I'm like, what, what the fuck? It's Amro? How is that even possible? 
Um, so, so yeah, so it's like, I got to have that very embarrassing experience just entirely off Twitter, but you can now imagine, Jonathan, my experience, uh, when I saw your tweet, cause I have it pulled up in front of me because I read this and I was, I, I, there was no way I could not respond to this tweet because it was such a perfect <laughs> fucking setup where you just say, is Kazuki Yao the only voice actor to play a Gundam protagonist? judo and then return to the series in a different role later on he's arbor lent in gundam double o and very funny to hear doing the more distinctive weirdo voice he became known for post double zeta and i read that i'm like well i mean yeah no there is another gundam protagonist who's played a very different role in another gundam show and it happens to be the one you're currently watching it's like how do you read that tweet and not respond to it so i just responded we will revisit this tweet in the near future and then about 30 minutes later, you had your tweet being like, okay, yes, I'm an idiot. Oh, my God. Yes, okay, I get it now. What the fuck? How is this even possible? Um, yeah, one of my favorite, uh, it's this, and then it was very similar to the uh, Moodle of Flaga stuff from C. Destiny of you tweeting about him and being like, Jonathan, he's not a clone. You need to know this. I need you to understand this before we do the podcast. <laughs> Because because I'm very glad that you looked up the ribbons thing and figured it out. Because I think it would have been hard to talk about ribbons if you had the revelation on the podcast. Because it would be the only thing we'd be able to talk about with that character. No, I we would be stopping the recording and I would be going and rewatching the entire series in one sitting, trying to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Because it it's, is it's it is pretty a pretty mind blowing performance. Um, and there's because you say it's it's yeah. Amaro. It's not. It's not. It's it's Toru Furia. Like yeah. we, he's in everything. He's Yamcha. He's he's uh he's uh, Amuro. He's he's the guy in. Uh, he's, he's in everything. He's, he's, he's Seiya in, in Saint Seiya. He's one of the main characters yeah. in fucking Detective Conan. Like yes, he is in every show, particularly from like the seventies and eighties. Um yeah, yeah. If you if you watch anime, you've you've heard Toru Furia, and he is, and it is like. And I don't even think, I think of him as an actor with a lot of range, but I don't think of him as a chameleon in that way of like where I would never be able to tell who it is. And it's not that his voice is indistinguishable. Like once you know it, it's very clearly him, but it's the way he's talking. It's the writing. It's the verbiage. It's the inflection. It is a crazy flex of a performance. Like it is, it is a master legend voice actor just Taking everyone to school is him as Ribbons Allmark, basically, is how I would describe it. It is a titanically good performance. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of, like, a story about how it came to be. Um, so, so you know, I think, like, multiple different Gundam things had tried to get him to play a non-Amro role in other Gundam things because it's fucking Todofudia. And he kind of turned it down multiple times. And he never, like, went to audition for other Gundam shows. He's just like, I did my Amro stuff. Like, I think it would feel weird... Um, like, people would, like, compare it to Amuro and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then it was having Shuji Ikeda play um, the chairman, Durndal, in Z Destiny. That's kind of been like, okay, it's maybe something that, that, that you can do. And then also the director, or I think it was the producer for the show, that, like, initially said, well, we'll just have you play the narrator. And that's it. And he was like, okay, yeah, I'll, and I'll do the narrator. Like, I'll do the voiceover at the end of the episode and, and maybe, like, do the 0079 and all that shit. Um, and as far as I know, that was the original plan. And I don't think there's like a like clear like reason given. Uh, I think partially maybe there's like a contractual thing that they can't say specifically. But it seems like there was an actor that they had originally cast to play Ribbons that then that fell through for whatever reason. And then they offered the role to Todofudia and he decided to do it. 
But one of the things he did when he decided to do it was he used a pseudonym. So he um, is cast under the name Noboru, Noboru Sogetsu, um, which is a pseudonym he has used for a couple of different uh, roles. And by like using the pseudonym, I mean that he gave interviews um, for the show, like using the pseudonym as like kind of playing this character almost. And I brought that in the Zoom chat, I gave you a link to the official Twitter account that as far as I know is run by Todofudia because I want you to see the picture, the oh profile my icon. God. Which is just so, Todofudia wearing sunglasses. It's it's so Noboru Sogetsu at Noboru underscore Sogetsu. His profile pic is Todofudia in a suit with a pocket square, and then he has these white like aviator sunglasses on, and his head is slightly cocked, and it is the greatest fucking thing. Oh my god. Yeah. And so he like did like some interviews, like wearing sunglasses and stuff. And obviously everybody knew that it was really him. It was a fun bit. Like even in that Gundam 40th anniversary thing, there's a part, this is not in the section that I did the uh, subtitles for, um, but he like continues to play this joke um, for that there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it, it, and so in like the credits for all 50 episodes of Double O Gundam, like he is credited as Noboru Sogetsu. Um, and, uh, and partially it's just a way to try to like prevent the Amuro stuff from being too associated with the, the role in the show and like prevent people from speculating, like, is it really secretly uh, like a UC Gundam thing or something crazy like that? Um, because yeah, because unless you look it up or like you're kind of in on it, it is very, very hard to tell that it's him. Um, and it's a really phenomenal performance one other thing i'll say really quick about the the twitter thing i guess like two things one is apparently where the name came from is it's a name that he uses like an account name on um different video games that he played online like there's a gun the free-to-play gundam online game that's very popular in japan called like battle operations um that he used this name when he would play that game and the other thing i'll say about this twitter account is part of the way i kind of discovered this and realized that this was an official account is that I follow Nakamoto Yuichi on Twitter, who's the voice actor for Mr. Bushido. And he, and so when I looked at this account, I saw that you, it, Twitter tells you if you follow people, if they follow the account you're looking at. And it's Nakamoto Yuichi follows this account. If you look at the 12 accounts that, that the Noboru Sogetsu account follows, he only follows 12, and one of them is also Nakamoto Yuichi. So I feel like he's very in on this joke, which is funny because if you know him... Like, he is a massive otaku that is, like, super, super, super into Gundam. Um, so I, it is very heartwarming to me that the fake... Like, it's not a fake account because it is Tony Fudia that actually runs his Twitter account. But that it follows him back, I think, is very adorable. That is wonderful and wholesome. And that is what we need in the world right now. That yeah. is great. Um, but, man, I mean, so going back to the Durandal thing, because that's where this started. Like, so Shuichi Keita plays Chairman Durandal in, in Sea Destiny. And... My one of my big theses about Seed Destiny when we talked about it is that one of that show's biggest mistakes is casting Shuichi Ikeda, not because Ikeda isn't one of the best voice actors alive, but because they lean on him too hard. They have him play exactly to type, exactly what you would expect from Shuichi Ikeda. They don't push him as an actor, which we know he can be pushed. It's Shuichi fucking Ikeda. And because of that, they like underwrite Durandal and they just let Ikeda do it. And it makes the show very lazy on that level. And it feels like Double O takes the exact opposite tact mm -hmm. to a T of this is not a Toru Furia character type. This is nothing like Amuro. This doesn't sound like him. This doesn't talk like him. The verbiage is totally different. And so, and it becomes like, I assume 
everybody who's ever watched Gundam 00 has the mindfuck moment of, oh my god, that's Amuro. And, uh, and they use it to just such great effect. And it is one of those things where, like, Gundam 00 being, we have talked all about, like, geopolitics and all this serious stuff. And yet it is a show with a villain named Ribbons Allmark who is a little boy with green hair. Mm-hmm. And, like, if that performance didn't work and didn't sell Ribbons Allmark, the show maybe falls apart. And so it just speaks to just how good it is that he sells it. And you you hear Ribbons open his mouth and talk, and you're like, yeah, this is some weird god kid who's come from the heavens to fucking destroy us all. And it just works. Yeah, no, because Ribbons is where you get a lot of the, like, Christian mythology stuff comes in, where he is, like, this very, like, Lucifer fallen angel type character, right? That he's... And it's it's really effective. I, it's, I love the, like, layers of what they do with it of where, you know, so in that schema, if you're looking at it like the Christian metaphor type stuff that they do, right, you have Aeolia Schuhenberg and Veda kind of together are, are God, right? That Aeolia Schuhenberg is this guy from fucking hundreds of years ago who is somehow able to, like, predict everything that's happened up to this point. Um, and has constructed this grand design, right? And it's like that like master plan that God is meant to have that nobody else can understand or um, do anything about. And that whenever you're trying to fight against the plan, you're actually furthering the plan, right? Because it's, the, it's God, he's omnipotent. And that's very much what the Aeolia character is meant to be. Um, and so Ribbons, as this entity that like is trying to defy God... And take, I just said God, trying to defy Aeolia and take over the plan for himself and rule himself instead of humanity that is meant to sort of ascend eventually. That he wants to have that power and control, which is very much Lucifer, right? Lucifer is jealous of God. He doesn't understand or believe in God's plan. He doesn't care about the humans. Um, He just wants to fuck all that shit up. So he becomes a serpent in the Garden of Eden, all that stuff. Um, And it's very much that same kind of design but one thing I love is that then Ribbons creates these additional innovators in his own image that he's using as those soldiers. And one of them, Regina Regetta, um, you eventually find out it's like kind of teams up with Tyria at some point, um, is trying to do the same thing to Ribbons that Ribbons did to Aeolia, right? And like this cycle of control and be like betrayal and this need to be the one who stands at the top of all things and controls everything and builds the world in their image i think the only reason all that stuff works is because the ribbons character is so well put together he's so convincing and believable and todo Fudia's performance is so compelling of this character that feels all powerful that feels all knowing um and that and yet also you can tell the arrogance right the arrogance of satan or whatever that that eventually you will that what you're doing will never be fruitful that you are actually Confurthering the plan that God has created because of course because it's the way that capital G God works um and so that those two sides of the character that this that at one time you feel them all powerful undefiable like they are everything um and then at the same time you can see deeply the arrogance the character holds that's going to be their downfall um and holding those two things in balance is like what you need to have a good Satan archetype character um, and this is like one of my favorites. Like I'm a, I really enjoy this kind of like Christian mythological story that leans more into the Old Testament side stuff like this. That is about the arrogance of 
these characters about the unknowability of this like distant god um and it's like a bit more cold and kind of cruel feeling and some of the stuff that paradise lost pulls on in its early sections that i feel like this is pulling on some of that same material with this ribbons character um that to me is very very compelling i agree 100 percent, and like i love that way of framing it of like the he is the guy who thinks he's going to overtake god but is all part of the plan because of course without ribbons uh, you know um setsuna does not ascend to become a real innovator and that is ultimately what this is, was all about um and yeah it is and i just love that like that like toru furia on one side is amuro who is like the ultimate gundam hero and then he is also satan in this show mm-hmm. you know and that is part of what makes it such an out of type performance um, and it is so good. And then I just, I love all of his his crazy innovators he's got on his side who yeah. have the nuttiest set of names. Let me look up really quickly uh, all the names of the innovators because, my, I mean, my favorite one is Revive Revival because that <laughs> one is just fucking hilarious. Um, and, and I love how they say it in Japanese. Revive Revivaru is, uh, is great. Um, but let's see, we have... Um, Oh, Gundam Wiki is being assholes about this, and the innovators are not the same as the innovades. So now I have to look that up. Um, yeah, well, you've got I, some like Regina Regetta. Okay, uh, you've got yes, a new them. returner. Also, is a very good name. Yes. And one of the funniest things is no character just immediately pegging a, a new returner as a, like some sort of inhuman creature because of how fucking absurd her name her name is. Okay, so I've got it. It's Ribbons Allmark, Regen Regetta, which every time Toru Furia says that name, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Revive Revival, Healing Care. I think you mean stabity. Healing Care, Jonathan. Healing Care. Healing Care. Bring Stability, which is almost Bring Stability, but it's Bring Stability. Divine Nova, a new returner. And of course, we can't forget about them, Sean. The Gaga Forces. Not the name of Lady Gaga's fan base. Those are all the like little red-haired boys who go out in the suits that, that, uh, that uh, Ribbons has created. And oh, this is so crazy. Yes, no, it's, they're all great. They're all these like weird angel children. That, like, I like that they all have like the, this very like bright kind of pastel hair colors um, and stuff like that that like very much set them apart from the the other character designs that have like you know you'll have some characters that have like slightly kind of reddish hair or maybe like something that's a little bit more on the blue or green side or i think felt has like pink hair but it's all like relatively muted colors and then you have these people with like this like fucking just bright green bright blue bright red hair um that's very like a very different anime style almost that they're like depicted in you know it's just it's something gundam double o gets about gundam which is that since the beginning, from, from Gundam 79 on, you've got to have a dash of ludicrousness yes. in your Gundam. You ha- that is part of like the recipe, is that Gundam 79 is this, is this serious show in a lot of ways. It deals with death very realistically. It deals with the idea of child soldiers and the trauma of war and, and all of these big ideas, the ascension of humanity. But you know what else has a guy named Ron Morale and his dad Jimba? It's got a boy on the ship named Job John. It's, it does this. It's got a character named Sharas Nobel dressed to the nines in a mask who rides around in a red mobile suit that's three times better than everyone else's mobile suit. So yes, Gundam should have a character named Revive Revival because why the fuck not? That is part of the recipe of Gundam. Yeah, and that's like, I think that's part of what they intentionally do with season two 
is that they put a little bit more of that like silliness in there right like that's i think it's a very intentional choice that they make everything more heightened and exaggerated including yeah that like silly element that gundam um typically has and and i think should have because it, it it yeah it's part of the secret sauce that like kind of has everything um stick together but but keeping yes. with the ribbon stuff, one of the things I really love with ribbons is that for most of it, you know, he's very very far from Amaro. But then once you get deeper into the show, they do a couple of things that like very like specifically bring him towards Amaro. Of he is the first Gundam pilot, right? He is the gun the pilot of the O Gundam. That is the Gundam that came down from on high that Cessna saw um, in flashbacks in season one. That kind of gave him this fanatical obsession with the Gundam and he wants to be the Gundam and eventually leads him to be celestial being. And Ribbons effectively tells him straight up is like, I like intentionally spared your life. Like I was in that cockpit and I saw you too. I let you live because of the expression, the way you looked at, at me and at the Gundam. And then like, I've like kind of set you on that path deliberately to be a Gundam Meister because it amused me to do so. Um, and this way that he's trying, he tries to play God with, you know, the Cessna character very specifically, but the way that it's sort of using that iconography of Gundam, right? That to this child Cessna, the Gundam is this divine entity that comes down and saves you from war. Um, and a lot of Cessna's arc, particularly in season two, is having to realize you know, when he in season one is saying over and over again, there is no God. Where's your God, Aliyah Sachez? And him very, like, pointedly trying to defy that. At the same time, he was d- doing the exact same thing, right? He he had made the Gundam an idol um, that he was effectively worshipping, that he was, like, living his life for. Um, and that's something he has to learn to discard in season two is to let that go. And it's like the Gundam is not divine. Gundam is not holy. Like, Gundam, both, like, you know, within the show, the thing, and then for us, like, the text of Gundam, the historical franchise, is not something that is set in stone that is that must be worshipped. It's something that should evolve and change over time. Um, and that's part of what it does then with having ribbons. In the end, um, he has... One, he has one of the fucking sickest mobile suits ever, um, which is his mobile suit that turns into a gun cannon and then into a, like, big red evil Gundam. Um, it kind of switches between those modes, and then he abandons that and gets into the O Gundam, and Cetro must Setsuna must like literally overcome the history of Gundam embodied in the 0079 design. Um, it's a very cool way of using that Gundam legacy uh, and that knowledge of Todofuya playing the character and kind of bringing it in line with the themes of the show. Um, that I think just is like really fucking awesome. Absolutely. I mean, it is it is stark and it is powerful. The ending of this show, the climax being the new double O Gundam facing down the O Gundam and getting its big, you know, saber in hand and rushing forward for that final confrontation. It is a it is a striking thing. And Toru Furia does just like mm-hmm. some very subtle stuff when once Ribbons gets in the mobile suit of like bringing back a little bit of like. If you hadn't realized it by now, that's where you would hit it, where it would hit you. Like, okay, that's Amuro, that's Toru Furia, you know? Yeah. Um, it's so smart. Yeah, I mean, there's in that fight, there's specifically, I think, some of that great staging where they they mirror the Ramba Rao fight where the cockpits get slashed open. Yep. And oh, then so good. the Ogundam throws its shield away and uses this two-handed stance with the beam saber that is the stance that Amuro takes in the Ramba Rao fight where he dodges and cuts off the goof's arms. It's like the exact same thing. It's very, very good 
callback. It's like it's a very fun way to play with the iconography of Gundam now that, you know, this show was made like 30 years after the original um, while not being cloying, but being additive to what the show is trying to say. Absolutely. And and I think at the same time, though, I would say this is totally a Gundam you could watch having seen nothing oh, yeah. else, you know? And it, it's really good that way. In the way that, like, it would be really hard for me to recommend After War Gundam X to a newbie because it is so in conversation. This is in conversation while also being fully its own thing. And that is a, an accomplishment in and of itself. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. It's a thing where if that knowledge of the Gundam franchise makes those moments richer... But those moments work within the context of this story alone, whether you you know the history of it or not. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, like I've been, uh, my my brother watched the original Gundam seventy nine and has not. He's been very busy and has not like he's been too intimidated by to watch like the rest of the UC stuff. And I've been telling him you should just watch Gundam Double O, like because like it's on streaming really easily. It's fifty episodes. It's got nothing. You can totally watch it on its own. Um, if you had to p watch one other show before it, it would be Gundam seventy nine. So like, yeah, it's so good. Um, obviously if you're in this deep in the conversation, you've already seen it. So this isn't a recommendation, yeah. but just a note, uh, speaking of the, um, the innovators, we didn't talk about a new returner though. And, and her relationship with lock on here, because that is a really compelling, like arc of the season. I think of that. She is someone who doesn't like really know what she is. And like, we're very aware, like they, they, they walk onto that place at LaGrange three and they got this purple-haired girl with them named a new returner. And I'm like, no, don't put her on the ship, you idiots. But they do. And, of course, they keep getting ambushed. And um, and what's so compelling about it is that Lyle kind of figures it out mm -hmm. before anyone else does. But he's also fallen in love with this girl. And he doesn't know what to do about it. And then, of course, we have to do the, the classic Gundam thing of where he almost talks her out of it. But then um, Ribbons takes over and... And Setsuna has no choice but to 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 kill her and end this. Uh, and it is that episode is is brutal and difficult and one of the best done versions of that trope I think they've done. Yeah, uh, I particularly like how it's set up. You know, at the beginning of that episode where Setsuna just straight up tells Lock on like, "I'm going to kill her. Like, you don't do it. You can't. Like, I will do it because it's going to have to be done." Um, and then that happens at the very beginning of the episode, and then you go for most of the episode, and Seth is not even in that episode that much, and then right at the very end, Ribbons takes over, and then from out of nowhere, the double Gundam shoots up and, and shoots her, um, and flies away, and you get that last moment of them being, like, connected by the GN particles, um, yeah, 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 it's a really, really well done version of that scene. It's so well done, and it's so, because they come so close, yeah. Lyle does get through to her. And it's fine, and and they're gonna be okay. And then you realize, well, the threat was never a new returner. It was it was Ribbons Allmark. Yes. Uh, and and he is he is a, he's the Satan. He's bad. He's yes. Bad. He is he is the real. literal devil, or he is the metaphorical devil. I guess I should say. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, yes. So okay. Uh, in terms of other characters, though, two we haven't talked about. I'm gonna take the easy one first. Patrick Colasar. Yes. <laughs> Our boy, the indestructible Patrick. Who is paired this season with Katie Mannequin. I guess he was last season too, but she is his colonel and he is he loves her. And another funny tweet where I kind of mm -hmm. I didn't put my foot in my mouth, but I like tweeted too early was he in the I think penultimate episode has this moment when Katie and everyone comes back and he um he they're gonna be destroyed and then he jumps in at the last second and seemingly gets demolished uh, and he says you know don't you touch my colonel and then he says I love you mannequin son or whatever and then he dies and and Katie is heartbroken 
Uh, and I'm like, man, and I thought that was perfect. I'm like, that's the perfect way for Patrick to die. They have milked this joke for everything it's worth. It's great. I love this goofy-ass character who thinks he's Char, but he is not Char. And finally he accepts it, and he dies for his colonel, because that's the kind of good boy he is. And then they just full-on give him Gundam Seed Destiny plot armor and bring him back so he can marry... Cotty man. Yeah, it's the fact finale. that it's like it's not just that he survives; is that when you find out he survives, is at their fucking wedding. It's so yes. good. Yeah, it's such a great. You know, it's like you because kind of, at that point you've kept the joke running. You have to run it all the way through. He is he is the indestructible Patrick Colsar, right? Like they yes. should make there's there's like been vague talk about um, making eventually a Double O Gundam um, sequel. That happened. That talk happened relatively recently because it was a big anniversary of the show. Um, like two years ago, I guess, was the 10-year anniversary of the movie. Um, and so if they do do something else like set in this universe, it should be a thousand years in the future, and somehow he's still alive. Because he just can't die. It's just like, <laughs> I don't know how. Um, it's just, he's just still alive. The indestructible Patrick Colasar. Maybe we find out he was the original innovator all along. Yep. And he just has those powers. Oh, man, I love this just... I love that character. I loved him from the beginning. They just the, the joke that starts in episode one and carries through to episode 50 is so well done. Mwah. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, and then mm-hmm. Mr. Bushido, Graham Aker. Uh, what a character, man. They pulled that off. Holy cow. Yeah, th- that that is another one where recording the episode uh, last time, it was very hard to never call him Mr. Bushido because in my head, that's what the character's name is. Um, like I have to sometimes look up if what his real name is Graham Aker because he's just fucking he's fucking Mr. Bushido, and like one of the I think the biggest surprises for me in rewatching Double O Gundam is how little that character is in the show because in my head yeah. he's like one of the main characters he's sets in his rival like he's all over the place. like it's fucking Mr. Bushido just like and we talked about in season one that he's not in season one he doesn't have that much screen time. Um, and in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, but just we wait until season two. And it's like, no, he maybe almost has less screen time in season two, but he just makes such a big impact on the viewer because it's just fucking Mr. Bushido. He's so great. Uh, and, and that name, there's a there's a moment like midway through the season where I think he meets Billy again. And Billy's like, oh, so they're calling you Mr. Bushido now. And he says, oh, you know, I didn't ask to be called that. Bullshit. Bullshit. You don't like being called Mr. Bushido. That is like his happiest thing in the world is that people have now called him Mr. Bushido. And he wears his goofy mask. Like, talking about, like, how the show, like, reconfigures Gundam tropes. I just love that this character is almost like a parody of Char. Mm-hmm. Of, like... First, we have the whole origin story in season one of him falling in love with the Gundam and then getting injured. And and then in season two, he's got the mask. I mean, I also made the analogy on Twitter, and I think I'm 100% correct that he's basically the Phantom of the Opera, but in Gundam. Mm -hmm. Because he had a horrible injury. He has a crazy-ass mask. He is in an unrequited love with someone else who he is, through repeated encounters, training to be better at their thing. So ultimately, they can do it together. Uh, And by do it... I mean, fight in mobile suits, but also I also think just have sex. I think he does kind of want to fuck Setsuna, even though he doesn't know who Setsuna is. He wants to fuck the the Gundam and whoever is in it. Um, It is so good. And you say, like, oh, he's Setsuna's rival. He's not, though? Like, Setsuna doesn't even think about this guy. He wants to be Setsuna's rival. He wants to be that important, but he's really not. And, like... He could have such a massive impact on this universe because he is a supremely talented pilot. And he's a very... He's a good guy deep down, I think, from what we saw in season one. But um, 
he is so single-minded that he has no impact on this world whatsoever because all he wants is to have this big duel with the Gundam. He finally gets it. He loses and sets in his, you know, it's basically like, this is pathetic. You could do so many things. You have to fight for something and leaves. And, uh, and that's it for Mr. Graham Aker. Um, and it is, is a memorable arc. Although I say this is it. We also get the flashback of him fucking training in like Japan with an actual master and like standing under the waterfall yeah. with the water over his face. Oh man, they they knew what that character was and they went for it. Yeah, I, and I think there's something like particularly pointed about, and I'm saying this with completely self-consciously about having the American dude become the guy who's like the samurai Bushido man, right? That it's yes. like, it's not even like his culture, right? Like it's, um, you know, like the they, they don't go deep into it, but like the implication is it's through his relationship with Billy, who is like part American, part Japanese, like Billy Katagiri, whose father or no, it's not his father. It's his uncle is Homer Katagiri, which what a great name. I love that they Homer. named that kid character Homer, who is the head of A-Laws. And he doesn't have like a lot of screen time, but he's the one who's kind of manipulating things. And you see him in that flashback kind of training Mr. Bushido. Um, who also Homer, Homer Katagiri like commits seppuku. You see that like in the epilogue at the end um, that he, yes. he he follows through on the whole samurai thing. But yeah, having this guy who's like this American who's just like obsessed with this like Japanese shit. Um, I, I self-identify with Mr. Bushido quite a bit in that regard. Um, <laughs> and I think it's a, one of the effective things about season two when we you know point out multiple times, like they take these things that were more grounded in season one and heighten them. I think this is something that, like, again, I can see someone maybe, like, get kind of irked by how almost ridiculous the Mr. Bushido thing is if you really like the character in season one. But to me, you take this character that over the course of season one, he becomes more and more kind of consumed by this, like, symbolic representation within the story that by the end of season one, Graham Aker is less of a character and more of this representation of the violence that Cessna has wreaked on the world who comes in at the last second when Cessna thinks he's victorious and knocks him down a peg because it's like, I am like all the, the seeds of destruction you have planted throughout your life. Like I am, or throughout the show, I am here. Um, like all the people you have killed, the things you have done is here to like knock you back down to earth. Um, and so then in season two, he continues on that trajectory where he's like almost not even a human. Like he's this like symbol of warfare for warfare's sake of like fighting for honor and fighting for this sense of self-fulfillment, but not to exact change on the world. That is just this sort of cycle of vengeance and retribution that he is, a, that he knowingly puts on, right? He intentionally makes himself a symbol by becoming Mr. Bushido with the mask and the fucking samurai regalia and all that shit he puts on. Um, having fucking Billy make his mobile suits that are very cool. The Masurao and the Susanoo, um, named after Japanese mythological figures and looking like big crazy samurai armor um, that also are like so flags. Much. Yeah, like he puts all that on to become this symbol um, that it's very appropriate that ultimately... Because Setsuna has grown so much, what Mr. Bushido is can't impact Setsuna because he represents this sort of like closed loop of an ideology that cannot, as you point out, Jonathan, it can't affect anything or do anything. And Setsuna has grown beyond that, right? Setsuna has grown beyond his sort of traumas and needing to be sort of consumed by this cycle of violence and this history of violence he's committed because he's no longer enacting violence to enact violence he's enacting violence in order to create room for change and that's what he's trying to do and that's something that mr bushido cannot do because it's not 
what he is. Um, and so I think that that very like symbolic construction of a character is very effective in in a narrative sense. And it's just, he's also just fucking cool. Like the moment he yes. flies in and he turns on the fucking Trans Am, it's the first time any mobile suit other than our main Gundams have used that. This is just a fucking fuck yeah, Mr. Bushido moment that just makes you very hype. It, yeah. It's like, it's, oh, it's got all this thematic richness we're talking about. It's also just fun. Yeah. And like Gundam should be fun on a certain level. And this is fun. Um, because again, they fucking get it. So I think that's pretty much all the characters. Is there anyone we haven't touched on you wanted to? The last one I want to touch on um, is Wan Lumi uh, because she right. she like doesn't have a huge role like in season two. She's definitely more in season one. But I really like where they go with that character and how she kind of represents this like upper class rich motherfucker who is like just dissatisfied with their life because they're so rich and just want to use that money to kind of fuck around and pretend like they're doing something big and important but really it's just like yeah oh, i just want to see like change in the world so i'll give some money to the celestial being and i'll give some money to ribbons Allmark and whatever and it's like really she doesn't know what the fuck she's doing um it's just like she is this like in the way that mr bushido is like war incarnate she is the privilege incarnate um, and it's very satisfying to see her get knocked down a peg and, you know, it's like, it's sad that she has to die, but also that character really fucking had to die in season two. She gets a little bit of redemption, I yeah. think, because she does give, she does ultimately make the choice to make her life, like, worth something in giving Setsuna the Veda coordinates. So she does have that moment, and I thought that was powerful because the, the really getting knocked down a peg is watching her brother die. Yeah. And, like, and realizing she can be touched that way. Um, and then, yeah, she does die. And, and that is the point in the series where you're, you're, you're in cleanup mode where, like, you know you're reaching the end because they're just taking pieces off the board. Every Gundam show gets to that point. Um, and except for Sea Destiny because everyone lives no matter what. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. It's uh, it's. I agree. I think she's a uh, an interesting character and a, and a very like even if it's minor, an important part of the tapestry they're they're weaving here. Yeah, and I just realized there's another pretty major character we haven't talked about, which is uh, Marina. Um, I don't think we've hit on. <laughs> yeah, that would be a major character. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I like. I mean, I, this is another one where I assume there's more in the movie, mm -hmm. but I like that it doesn't go in the exact archetypal direction you're expecting. Um, this does not end with her and Setsuna like settling down a la, you know, Lacus and Kira in Seed or something. Or or even like kind of what you see at the end of Gundam Wing. Um, it's, it's, they do kind of wind up going their separate ways, but they are always in some kind of conversation with each other. And they even do the mirroring in this season of, this season ends with a letter from her to Setsuna trying to kind of say what she thinks about the world and she is the one character who's sort of committed to a level of pacifism through the entire show but i don't think it's you know it's not a it's a hopeful pacifism it's not a eyes shut to the world pacifism it is a um it's it's hard to explain I, i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because i i think on one level i was a little disappointed to see her kind of relegated to the caretaker role with the kids but also they do a lot of interesting thematic stuff with that and like the song of peace they make becomes the second end theme there's a lot going on there yeah no so i think the thing i like with marina and setsuna i mean one of the main things is that they are not really a romantic pairing um right. and i like the show like makes that very explicit up front in season two where 
you know, early on in the season, they rescue Marina and she's like with the Ptolemaeus for a number of episodes. And when she's there, you have a Milena comes into the uh, cafeteria or whatever. It just pokes her head in and says, so are you two dating? And they both immediately deadpan, just look at her and say, nope. And it's like, that's, yep. and that's, and that's just true. Like that's not, and it's the same thing that Cessna reaffirms to felt at the end of the season is like, that's not the kind of relationship that they have. Um, it's this like, I think it's this mutual fascination with each other because I think they both see like this opposite in one another, right? That, but they're both striving for the same thing and taking opposite paths and realize that both of them are necessary, right? That is both Setsuna, and one of the big lessons Setsuna learns over season two is that destruction doesn't accomplish anything on its own, but but things can be created within destruction, right? That's one of like the main, like I think thesis statements of the series is, and it's a rejection of the like true pacifism in something like Gundam Wing, which would say that destruction is always bad. And Double O Gundam is saying, no, things are born through destruction. Like you cannot create something from nothing. And sometimes you need to clear out the forest for new plants to grow, right? Like destruction serves a function and you need to fight in order to create change. Um, but at the same time, you do also need people who are trying to affect that change, not just through violence, but through like cultural means, which is a, like, and I think that the show's not perfect at it with Marina. And I also have some frustrations with the like relegating her to this like caretaker role with the children. But I think like the sentiment of what they're doing with the song and the way it's being spread, I think it's good that it's, they don't go like too hammy with it, but just like sort of give this indication of like, also you do need politics and you need culture to motivate and maintain that change. And that's something that Setsuna can't do. So it's like, she needs Setsuna in order to like level the playing field and create this destruction that can motivate change. But then you need people in the rubble to create the political and cultural shifts that need for that change to be meaningful in the future. It's why she can't pick up the gun yeah. near the end of the series, because that's not her role and she knows it. And she knows, she knows like, I don't think she's naive about it. I think she knows she could die or something, mm -hmm. right? But she also knows that like, if she is going to do what the world needs her to do, she can't be the person who takes the path of destruction ultimately, you know? Um, and it's a very, yeah, it's a smart side of the show. I think the moment where it all comes together best for me is the one where I think it's, it's Setsuna has just been fighting Ali Al Sanchez, and the song comes through, and everyone hears on the radio. He's about to kill her, or him, actually, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And he hears the song, and then he just kind of breaks down, and he says, I don't know what I'm fighting for anymore. And that really, like, sparks something in him, and that's where after that is when he gets the whole idea of you have to change, and you have to grow, and, like, I'm going to become something new. And I think that's a really key moment, because that is his turn from, from this destruction is necessary and righteous to, well, but, but something can be built out of it. There can be something new here. There can be a change. And there can, and that's what the show's about. Yeah, it's the, it's the core ideological shift of season two, which is that celestial being in season one is using violence to maintain a stalemate between in, within the world, right? It's not trying to yeah. affect any real change. It's trying to prevent war and violence from occurring. Um, and that's what the violence they wreak does. In season two, Setsuna's perspective changes and it's like, well, at, at the end of the day, that's kind of where Mr. Bushido comes from, right? Because that's kind of also in some ways violence for violence's sake. Like it's not trying to change anything or create something new. So 
like the ideological shift that Tessa needs to make is to motivate that destruction through this lens of creation rather than it like destruction itself to be the end goal, which is basically what it was in season one. And I mean, the show is so well structured because season one, episode one, the premiere of the whole show is you get the video from Olia Schoenberg of this is what celestial being is. And then the very, very end of season two, the series finale, is Setsuna in the, that last montage kind of laying out a new vision of what Celestial Being is, which is like, we're here if we're needed as this piece is created because this is this is a, a being that is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really love that you see that transformation in full. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I think we feel like we should just talk about the, the last couple episodes and sort of the, the finale of this whole thing. Um, and of course the, the big moment that I think we probably need to break down and kind of the climax of the series really is Setsuna's awakening as an innovator within the double O Gundam and this wave of understanding that sends throughout the battlefield, which is now the second time I will argue that they have adopted, they have adapted in Gundam, the Amuro dies Mm -hmm. ending of the Yoshiki Tomino novel. We saw that in Unicorn Gundam. The finale has that scene with the, um... Play 12, whatever her actual name is in that show, but that's who she is, um, dies, and like you get this thing that goes out to everyone. Um, but this one is honestly a pretty direct adaptation of the idea in Yoshiyuki Tomino's novelization of the original Mobile Suit Gundam, which, if you don't know, ends with this isn't the very ending, but in the battle at Abawaku, Amuro is killed by basically a stray shot. But he has this big new type flash that sends out, and in the novel, he goes like character to character on that battlefield you start with Shar and because he's the closest and you kind of go out from there and they all have some flash from Amuro that tells them something that helps sort of bring the battle to a close and they also all know in that that Amuro has died um and it's a beautiful stunning scene that I think even though it's never been animated it hangs over a lot of Gundam Mm -hmm. um we talked about it with Unicorn but here like it's not that Setsuna dies it's actually the opposite he ascends kind of but it's very similar in this thing of then it sends out and then we go to all the characters and none of them can like exactly vocalize what's going on but they suddenly have this expanded understanding and it brings the battle to sort of a close in a way of of Billy no longer wants to kill um, uh, Sumeragi and you have Andre is finally willing to listen to Marie and a lot of things are sort of defused and the battle winds up ending not with like big explosions at least at that stage you're, you're gonna have to fight with ribbons but with this like wave of understanding sort of diffusing things and giving people direction and it is really beautifully done and i think a really smart reading of of what tomino did in that novel yeah absolutely and it's it's the kind of main thrust of the second half of season two sort of like the final core of the the show which is Cessna has made that choice um, after the confrontation with Ali al to become change. And then he starts becoming, you know, the innovator. Um, and I just love how they represent all that stuff, both in the writing and visually. Um, this is where I think some like the most gorgeous animation is where they get uh, some more, a bit more stylized with stuff of the like one. I think this is where they use the aesthetic of the green particles, the, the GN particles so effectively because it's like so thick. Um, but the image of the like infinity symbol, the two O's, that is like the icon of the yes. show, projecting from the back of the double O Gundam, which is one of the best Gundam designs ever, um, is so gorgeous. And it's sweeping through, and it happens multiple times throughout the season, like sweeping through and connecting different people. 
Um, I think it's just like visually so powerful and the iconography of like infinity, uh, I think is very evocative. And then, yeah, it, it just hits on this like new type thing that I think oftentimes gets lost when Gundam does the new type stuff of its core purpose of transcending physical boundaries and melding people together. Um, and one of like the sort of pseudoscientific conceits in Double O Gundam that I think makes it like tinges it slightly differently that makes it work better for me is that it's all motivated through like vaguely through quantum physics. Um, so that's where they like talk about that the double Gundam quantizes and the like quantum brain particles that the super soldiers and the innovators have. All of that is like, it's really hitting on this idea of in quantum physics, there's a concept called quantum entanglement, whereby two different particles on a quantum level can become entangled, meaning that effectively, no matter what physical space or physical distance those particles occupy, something that happens to one particle will be reflected in the other particle as well. This is a real world scientific phenomenon, meaning that if you were to move one of the particles or affect it in some way or do like give it energy, something like that, that change would be reflected in the other particle no matter the distance. Um, and that's kind of what happens here is people become melded or entangled on a quantum level and able to understand other people's thoughts and lived experiences. Um, and that's how Cessna is connecting people. And I like the, like, again, it's very pseudoscience. It's like, that would not actually work. Um, but like the vague idea of it and the conceit of it, I think is something that keeps it fresh. And it like tinges a lot of how they represent the, the um, new type or innovator stuff throughout the whole show. That also culminates in, I think, one is one of the coolest thing a Gundam has ever done. That's like the ultimate like zenith of what uh, Setson is able to achieve, where he quantizes the double O Gundam, breaks it into particles, moves it, and then reassembles it at a different location, which he does twice in the series. And is one of the fucking coolest things ever. Yes. As like the concept of a new type of power. It's basically like Neo in the Matrix, right? He has so full control over himself and everything that he is that he is able to break himself apart and put himself back together. Um, and it is just such a great visualization and conceit of what that idea of the innovator is, of moving to this like other plane of existence um, and how it like works within the world of Gundam. It's very cool. Absolutely. I agree 100%. It's uh, Some of the animation around that mm -hmm. is just stunning. It's, it's sort of the mirror image of what we get in season one when Nina sets off like the the red gn particles and it like blankets half of the fucking planet earth yeah but you get it in space in the end here and it's just just gorgeous animation and like a really as this is true of the whole show really good uses of digital animation yes. and the possibilities that like these are things you just couldn't do in past gundam by hand it's like it would be it would be impossible and so what they're doing is they're 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 really like some of these ideas i feel like are coming out of the aesthetic possibilities of what you can do with cg assisted animation um and there's some really cool stuff with that. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal ending. It is one of like my all time favorite new type moments in the franchise, and it's yeah. and it's because it does hit on a little bit more of that kind of like inscrutability or like unknowability of what new types are in the original Gundam. That is also like tinged with all like the '70s aesthetic. Um, here it's not quite as '70s, but I think it hits on a similar like feel yeah. and mood to me. Absolutely. And, you know, all of that happens in the penultimate episode. Yep. So the finale, they actually make room for the finale to be able to kind of breathe in a way Gundam finales often don't. Yeah. It's kind of got that turn A uh, structure where the second half is sort of all wrap up. Um, 
It is also, though, and I find this fucking hilarious, uh, so Seiji Mizushima, the director of this, is also the director of Full Metal Alchemist, which would have been the show he did before this. Mm -hmm. The original Full Metal Alchemist that is partially based on the manga, but then goes in a different direction. And this finale is almost to a T identical in structure to the Full Metal Alchemist finale, for those who have seen it, of like the second half, you have sort of this big culmination and this climax, and in, in Full Metal Alchemist, it is Edward Elric is about to do this human transmutation, and we're not sure where that's going to leave him. And then we fade to white and go into the future like four months, and then we see this big closing montage of where everyone is, and then finally we go back to Ed, and that's where the series ends on kind of an ambiguous note. And in Double O Gundam, it is Setsuna is going, you know, um, fighting with ribbons and they're, they're coming at each other. And we don't actually see the finishing blow. We go fade to white and then we roll credits and we have this big montage and then we go back to Setsuna at the end. Um, and it's kind of the same for both of those. And then both of them are identically structured in that there's also a sequel movie that is also a series finale. And there are some things that are sort of left unfinished in the show. Um, so, so Mizushima kind of... Uh, did the same thing here twice, which I think works in, in both shows. I, I will still defend the original Full Metal Alchemist just because it's not the manga. doesn't mean it isn't good. Um, but yes, I mean, obviously there are some things, like there are all the hints about alien life and that that is where we're headed. And I, I do know that that is roughly the premise of the movie is it's yeah, kind of a first yeah. contact story. And that is sort of uh, what they're seeding here in the closing episodes is where we have left to go. But it is still, a, it's same with Full Metal Alchemist. If, this, if there were no movie, this would still be, I think, a very satisfying finale, even though you can feel that there's a little more to do. Yeah, no, definitely, because like the the whole concept of the Schuhenberg plan of preparing for the, the conversations or the dialogue to come, um, which is a very good, I just love that phrase, um, particularly how it's structured in, in Japanese, it just sounds very cool. Um, but yeah, that, that Schuenberg's like planning or designing for humanity to be able to move to that next step. And so, yes, like the alien stuff is, is a part of what happens in the movie. Um, but it is within the context of the show itself. It is just also, you know, another way of realizing the new type idea from classic Gundam of that it is about moving, be growing beyond the earth. Right. And his concern is yeah. when people move out into space, we cannot bring the like baggage that we have from this phase of our history out there in space because what could happen and like some of that is alien stuff but some of that is just space colonies and gundam happens and we blow each other up and we kill each other in space wars and it feels like that is part of what it's saying is like before we do that before we go out into space before we stretch out in that way we have to resolve it now not then not wait but do it now um that kind of feels like that's what it's arguing for in that in that finale yeah and and correct me if I'm wrong. There is no other Gundam that touches on alien life, right? I refuse to comment. Okay, I didn't. There's definitely not up until now. I just didn't know if there were any in the future that do. Um, we will but, readdress but, that question in the future. It's a it's a complicated okay. answer. It's a complicated answer. I'm fine with that. All right. Um, I guess I guess the the, the Iron Blooded Orphans are Martians. Because they are iron-blooded. Yes. They're, they're born on Mars. Exactly. That's all I know about that show is that... Because you explained this to me why it's called Iron-Blooded Orphans. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I ever told you that, yeah, in season two, they all get green skin. So they, they become Martians. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. And the main one is Martian Manhunter. And it's the greatest crossover of all time. Exactly. All right. Um... What else to say about Gundam 00? We haven't talked about this batch of theme songs yet. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go because the fucking 00 Gundam has the best fucking theme music. Oh my god. 
There is one I didn't really like, Which but one? they went. S- I don't like the last opening. Uh, I like the Beyond the Tears or whatever. Nami did Nobuko. I like that one. It's not. It's not that I dislike it. It's. It feels a little out of place uh, tonally and everything to me. But I will say, seven out of eight of the songs, adding up the openings and the endings, I adore, and that is a really, really high percentage. Uh, and that last song, the 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 second opening to season two, I don't hate it as a song. I just didn't really like it in context. So that is still a really, really high bar they cleared. I oh, no, there's something say. I like about it, particularly when you get into that last stretch of episodes where it is a more like, it's, I mean, it's again, it's the song is called Beyond the Tears. So it's like, it is intentionally a much more hopeful song. And I think that like, yeah. and I think that when you get to the end of the show, and maybe it's like part of like rewatching it, it feels very appropriate to me for the ending of Double O Gundam, which like, Overall, within the schema of Gundam, has one of the most positive, like uplifting endings of any Gundam show. Like it's you very know, true. lots of people die, but it is it has this very like happy, like hopeful feeling when you're left with it. And I feel like that song kind of leaves you with that. That's fair. I think it's just a taste thing. It's again, I don't think it's bad. I just saying for me, uh, it didn't work. The first opening, I fucking adore. That mm-hmm. one is so cool. There's a guitar lick in that that's like going on in the background for most of it that is out of this world good i think that one's great yeah that's a great song and that one's weird where i have a i have like a spotify playlist of my favorite like anime songs basically and that's been on there forever and so it had been a very very long time since i had heard the like 90 second tv edit and it it was like very distracting to me every time it's like oh it's about to go into the second part of the course and it's like oh wait no it went to the bridge oh my god like it works fine but it is something where it's like if you've heard a song like hundreds of times one way and then you hear like the edited version it's like if you hear a radio edit version of a song that takes out the curse words or something it's very jarring um but yes it's a great song uber world which is the band that plays that um i like that band quite a lot and then both endings i really like prototype boy i know it's just called prototype but it's prototype boy in my mind Uh, yeah um that one that is a great song and the the like ah like the chanting at the beginning and end of it is crazy good uh, and then I think the last song, which is we we hear the lyrics of it several episodes before we actually get that ending because it's the Marina and the Kids song, but now it's this like J-pop version of it. It's that's a really cool move they make. Yeah, one thing I particularly like is I feel like they up their game in season two from the let's do the like start playing the ending song a little bit before the ending credits begin to give that like cool transition, which we started talking about with Gundam Seed. And here they up it by having for both um, Prototype and Trust You, which is the second ending song. Um, both of them have about five or six different versions um, that will yes. play depending on the episode that have different parts transition in. So sometimes Prototype will have the ah uh, part play. And then sometimes it will just go into a non-instrumental accompanied like lyric version uh call that acapella yes just the acapella and then i think in particular the one i love is with trust you there's a couple of episodes the main one they do it for is the on your returners dies episode where they just transition to that with starting from the chorus with acapella with the singer just belting out the words i love you i trust you as you just watched his like lock on's love die it is a really powerful moment. Like I think they yeah. use those ending song transitions incredibly effectively all throughout season two. Absolutely. Uh, for I ha- I think for a full fifty episode four core anime with eight openings and endings, this is about as good as it could possibly get. Right? Like yeah, it's hard to go seven or eight for eight. However you feel, 
that's a really good batting average. Yeah, they're all great songs. I just think like a bunch of the insert songs are also fantastic. Yep. Um, yeah, that it's it's just a really good selection of music. And then it does one of my other favorite long-running anime things in modern anime, which is it ends the last episode by playing the opening theme from the first core. That's the one that yes. everyone always identifies the opening theme from the like the first opening theme of the show. Most strongly with that show, so it brings Daybreak's Bell back for like the last ninety seconds of the show while it's playing over the epilogue, which is always a really great like we're wrapping it up, boys, kind of feel. Yeah, you got to do it. Um, all of that is great. Uh, they also structurally change things a little bit in that every episode has something after the credits. Mm-hmm. So they do the credits and then they have like a minute or two of more material. It's it's I wouldn't call it a tag because it is essential stuff. It's not a teaser. And then they go into the next episode preview, which has a sick guitar beat yeah. under it this season. Um, is that a common thing that modern anime does where they just have a full scene after the yeah. credits every week? It's pretty common. Yeah. Um... Okay. Yeah, so it's one of the reasons why you never skip the ending theme because I think I yeah. talked about this one time on the podcast several years ago where I forget what I was watching, but I was watching something and I skipped to the next episode without going through the full ending theme because the thing that fucks you is some shows don't do it consistently. If it does it consistently, it's fine. That's great. Like sometimes it can be right. very cool because it's a good mood break to have that ending theme and then you get this next little extra scene at the end. I watched some show where it didn't do it very often. And then in like, it was like the penultimate episode did have it at the end. And so like at the end of the penultimate episode before the credits, it was a happy ending of that episode. Then the credits happened. Then apparently there's a scene after the credits where the fucking planet explodes. Cause like the new, like a real life tag shows up and I watched the next episode. It's like the planet's gone. And I'm like, how did this even happen? Oh, it was Tenchi Muyo. That's what the fuck it was. It was one of those Tenchi Muyo shows. It was like, how did the fucking planet blow up? When <laughs> then I had to go back and rewatch the last episode. It's like, what the fuck did I miss? That, that is like the ultimate parody of anime. I love it. Of like, before the credits, everyone's happy. After the credits, the planet explodes. Yes. It was like, it like literally the planet was gone. It's like, what the fuck? Oh um, my God. Yeah. So there are definitely a couple of episodes in season two where it's like, if you didn't watch through that extra scene at the end of the credits, you would be very confused at the beginning of the next episode. Yeah, I mean, it's just great stuff. And they do it consistently. So, you know, I just don't think I ever skipped the end credits. No, yeah. I just, just watched it. And yeah. because the end credit songs are always good, it's always just fun to listen They're, to yeah. them. And the animations are good. I particularly like the animation for Trust You, which is like everyone's jackets, like, hold, like, tied together and holding on and, like, representing the people. Yeah. It's a very good, very good kind of music video. So good. Um, one of the images from that is actually our, our cover image. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's the, the photo I have here. It's of the Gundam covered in flowers. Yes. Uh, very good stuff. Anyway, um... Yeah, I obviously if we have more thoughts on Double O, we can clearly bring them up next time because we've got one more of these. But just as a TV show, uh, and we'll see how the movie brings it up or down or wherever for me, uh, this is one of the best Gundam shows. I, I did a little tier ranking of Gundam for me because I've been thinking about this a while, and, and I think you and I have agreed for a while that the, the S top tippity tier of Gundam is Turn A 79 and uh, War in the Pocket. I have to say, I need to like think on it more. Double O might be in that tier for me. I-, I think it might be that good. I don't think I'd quite put it in that tier, but it is like the tier below it, um, for sure. Like it is, yeah. Like to me, like Mobile Suit Gundam and Turn A in particular, I think are are relatively untouchable. But this is like right at the top of the heap, right below those, because yeah, Double O Gundam uh, is phenomenally good. Phenomenally good, and I think. 
and I think part of it is is just for me how much it it's when I look at those ones in like that top tier for me they're all so different from one another mm-hmm. and this one also just so stands on its own as as its own work that does not it like it is in conversation with a lot of other Gundam things but it doesn't feel indebted to them in the way or or like weighed down with continuity or any of that it's it's just it's it's perfect it's such a good show yeah, and uh, obviously we're in agreement on that. The, the exact tier that doesn't really matter, but uh, we both love this one. Yeah, no, this was some of the most fun I've had rewatching one of these shows. Um, yeah, because because I remembered yeah. liking it so much, but again, it had been at this point it's been long enough since I've watched some of these shows that I only saw once that like a lot of the details were gone. So some of the stuff, um, particularly with Saji in season two, was like, oh my god, right? This show is so good. Holy shit! Yeah, well, I this is this is why we do this show, right, yes. Sean? Yeah, because yeah. Gundam has a, a couple of maybe not great shows in there, but most of them are, like, stupidly good. It is crazy. Yes. The overall batting average of quality of Gundam shows is ridiculous. Um, yeah. And then you get one of these really just transcendental ones, and it's like you fall in love all over again, you know? Yeah. Um, that's certainly how I felt. So one more Gundam 00 episode, though, because we have the movie Awakening of the Trailblazer. Not Awakening. Awakening. Yep. Uh, and I am very excited. I got my Blu-ray. I am ready. I am excited to see that movie. Um, and and that will be the wrap-up for this sort of phase of Gundam. And then, then we'll move on. But but one more on Double O, the movie. Jonathan, the childhood of humanity has ended. And it is time for a trailblazer to be a wake. Legends of 